power on. Ooh, the man of tomorrow is here in all of his glory. <laughs> it is the golden stallion, the man of tomorrow, Savzu, the rated R radio star. Uh, got something fun here. So, and it's something I haven't done in a, in a while. Um, I was very graciously asked by a, a sovereign tech listener to appear on uh, their podcast, which is a tremendous honor. You know, I mean, it, it's, it's an honor alone to get asked to be on any podcast, right? Because that essentially means someone finds value in the words that come out of your mouth and what greater compliment can you get, you know, as a podcaster, but then it's a whole other honor when it's a listener of your own show, that's like, Oh man, come on, <laughs> come on the show. Let's make it happen. And this is something uh, we, we had scheduled uh, a few weeks ago. Um, and finally on August 7th, uh, 2021 here, we, we did the recording. Um, it was a, it was a, a lonely Saturday night. <laughs> no, I'm sure Mrs. Sovereign was around here somewhere, <laughs> but, uh, uh, but it, it was a, it was a Saturday night and it was a, a good time as Saturday nights often are. The podcast is titled the Agora podcast, and, uh, it's hosted by, uh, Penguin and Sek Magora. Uh, Sek was the one that reached out to me and, just a dynamite guy. So is penguin. Uh, you'll hear it when you listen to this episode. I mean, just both, you know, very intelligent guys. And uh, I was, <laughs> shall I say triply honored, right? Cause you already have the double honored that, you know, it's sex listener or sovereign tech. Uh, you know, it's another podcast that I'm asked to be on, but then the triple honor is, and, and this wasn't planned, but I was on episode 13, my lucky number <laughs> of, of the Agora podcast. Now, links are in the show notes uh, to find um, their podcast. Their RSS feed link is in there. Their Twitter link is in there. Uh, their site on anchor.fm is, is, is in there. And really, you know, even 13 episodes deep, they've had some great conversations and some great guests uh, on their show, including they had Scott Horton on recently, of course. Uh, I mean, you know, anybody in the anti-war space knows Scott Horton. So it's a very worthwhile podcast to check out. Um, the episode I was on, we ended up going about two hours, just shy of two hours. Uh, and it was, what was really great about it is that, so, I mean, you can tell by the name, the Agora podcast that, you know, that comes with the flavor of like agorism, right? You know, this is, this is anarchism straight up, uh, that they are discussing and espousing, you know, radical decentralization, all that jazz. Of course you, you kind of hear that in, in the intro. And for me, the nice thing about that is that a lot of times when I've been asked to be on podcasts and it depends on the podcast, I mean, I've been on, you know, I've been on the Vanu podcast. I've been on school sucks. Um, I've been on podcasts that are very, uh, you know, Liberty oriented. Um, they might want to use different terms as far as ism, but you get it. So I've been on podcasts where I don't have to caveat much, but, uh, there's plenty of times where I've been on podcasts where I have to, I really have to start from like square one in explaining my positions. And that makes things really difficult to get into the nitty gritty, to, to take a good dive off the deep end. And I like doing that every once in a while, even a lot of times on sovereign tech, I feel like while I have no problem, you know, expressly saying that I'm an anarchist on sovereign tech, 
sometimes I find it necessary to, you know, explain things, uh, and, and, you know, do disclaimers and whatever to, to try and get anybody who's listening up to speed because like sovereign tech, you know, reaches out to so many people, um, and has such a broad audience that sure. There's a lot of times where they might not know what I mean. Say when I talk about how I, I think rights are, well, there's issues there. <laughs> so, but, but you get what I mean is that sometimes I feel like I, you know, instead of spending time just building off of the subject and like having this baseline of, okay, no, we're all into like actual individual freedom. Let's build up from there. Sometimes even not on my own show, I have to, or I feel the need to, you know, explain that a little bit. But when you go on a show like the Agora podcast, you just get to dive right in. So we got to get into some very interesting subjects. We covered uh, a lot of ground and a lot of it played off of this notion of is technology and the industrial revolution, even that, that ultimately brought on modern technology or advanced technology or, or industrial technology, I guess we could say, is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Or is it something that if it's bad, could it be steered into a good thing? And it really gets into this, this notion, this concept that one could call, and it has been called post-civilization. Um, I think that's a direction that it's kind of going, which is essentially taking what works that is a product of civilization, but then restructuring things or deconstructing, unstructuring things, um, reorganizing perhaps in a way that is more efficacious to the individual. And, you know, it's an interesting concept to go down. Now it's not primitivism, right? And no one on this episode was really arguing for primitivism, even though Sek and I would make jokes about, <laughs> let's go run off to the cabin or run off to the cave. Um, but really it's an important discussion to have is at this stage. Okay. Where has everything brought us as far as technology goes, you know, like the smartphone and so on. And all right, let, let's do a gut check on that. Is this good? Do we need a course correction? Et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so now I love this kind of conversation and it was a fantastic conversation to get to. Um, we also covered some other subjects. Uh, we did talk a bit about Pavel Durov, which I am going to, after I play after I, cause I'm including the pod, the entire podcast here in the sovereign tech feed after the podcast is over and you get to hear everything that gets discussed. Um, I will come back at the end of it. And I am going to, uh, I decided to, to do a little bit more of a deep dive on the, what, what Sack and I and Penguin, what we talk about with Telegram and, and Pavel Durov and perhaps, um, well, some, some questions about say the validity of use of Telegram. Um, I'm going to get into that because we didn't get to go too deep into it because I, I hadn't researched the subject a whole ton at that moment. Um, but now I've done a bit of research and. Uh, and I, I think it's worthwhile to, to cover and to go over it, um, uh, because it was a great question to ask or, you know, a great subject to get into. Uh, but we, I mean, there are other great subjects too. We did talk a little bit about the iCloud scandal, uh, which I know every podcast in the world is talking about. I will get to that because really I want to do, uh, an episode that's covering cloud computing, 
uh, on a broad and that's ultimate, not cloud computing, but the cloud in general, right? Because it's not just computing. This is more a case of cloud storage uh, with iCloud where, you know, potentially where they're scanning iCloud accounts uh, for, you know, whatever paraphernalia, uh, illicit paraphernalia. So talk about that. But then I also want to talk about uh, what's going on with uh, Windows 365, which is that's real cloud computing where you're actually running an operating system entire windows machine basically in the cloud. Uh, so I want to, I want to do an episode that covers those. So I'm not going to cover those subjects here necessarily, but we certainly get into them, um, in this episode. And as far as the iCloud thing, I mean, you'll hear me directly say, look, you don't have to upload your photos to iCloud. Uh, and that's easy to turn off, but still the implication is there, uh, you know, from Apple of, Hey, we're going to look through, we're going to, you know, rummage through your, you know, through your closet. So the implications and possibilities are enough, uh, are enough to really worry anybody. Uh, and if someone wanted to throw out their, you know, their iOS device, I don't blame you. <laughs> okay. Um, but of course, as you'll hear me discuss, you don't have to, uh, you know, upload, uh, photos to, to iCloud to where theoretically it would be an issue, but I'll save that for another episode. Uh, we also do get into, we do end up talking about, uh, John McAfee, uh, which is a subject I, I haven't, you know, surrounding his death that, uh, I haven't discussed on sovereign tech. Um, so there's things, you know, there's things here that I've talked about that have been a longstanding part that have been pillars of the sovereign tech podcast. Uh, but then also there are subjects that I've never talked about, um, on the show and even some reveals of things that not just subjects, but things I've never said really on the show. Um, so I think you're in for a real treat here, both if you want to check out a new podcast that's doing good things out there. And also, uh, you know, as a sovereign tech listener that you're going to hear things you have never heard before. And then I'll close out the episode. So listen all the way through that. And at the end of that, um, I'm going to close out the episode, spending a few minutes talking about what is going on um, with Telegram and Pavel Durov and him potentially being targeted, uh, being on a list. We will get into what that is all about at the end. So I will now let this shift to August 7th. <laughs> we'll set the time machine to August 7th at 5 p.m. Uh, 2021 and, uh, and enjoy this uh, couple hours of, of a good time with me, Sek Magora and Penguin on the Agora podcast. And then I'll be back to close it out. So enjoy the show. Meow. The Agora podcast is covered under the Bibcot no-gov license. That means the reuse and reproduction is authorized by anyone except governments or their agents. Find out more at bibcot.org. All right, welcome back to the Agora Podcast. It's uh, Penguin, as usual, my main man, Sek Magora, coming at you live from uh, Witten Sex Case, the Homestead, and my case, uh, Coastal Virginia. 
So uh, as usual, it's your home for agorism, uh, radical decentralization, localism, and anti-authoritarian concepts. And um, radical decentralist is actually uh, something I got on my Twitter bio. So I kind of wanted to slightly tweak the uh, intro, the wording of the intro with that. Anyways, we got a very special episode and a special guest for you, as always. Um Today joining us is Brian Sovereign. Um, Sec, would you like to in- introduce uh, Brian to our audience? Sure thing. Um, here, let me see if I can do this. Brian is the Golden Stallion, Sob Zoo, the Rated R Radio Star. <laughs> um, Brian is the uh, the host of the podcast, Sovereign Tech. His background in technology comes from years spent in multiple tech companies, the U.S. Army, and for being involved in the cypherpunk community since the late 1990s. Brian also has a doctorate of divinity. Dr. Sovereign also fancies himself a gamer, a historian, a tech journalist in that order, and a supporter of the Center for a Stateless Society, Center for Global Non-Killing, the Albert Einstein Institute, the Institute of General Semantics. Brian, welcome to the show, bud. Hey guys, great to be with you. Uh, you, you did you did good there, Sec. I, I, th- I think you got my <laughs> my rote intro pretty pretty well. I think I missed a part, but yeah, close enough. Yeah. That's right, you got it. Yeah, maybe you didn't get Savzu or something, but that, that works for me. <laughs> so thanks for coming on. Um, two questions right off the bat. Number one, why don't you write over at C4SS? I think you'd be a great contributor uh, over there. Yeah. Uh, great question. Um, my writing skills, uh, I, I guess you could just say my creativity, uh, is, is engaged in other pursuits. Sure. Um, I don't consider myself a great writer by any means, uh, but I certainly do it a lot. Uh, but that's, that's basically the reason behind it. But I, I, I love a lot of what those guys do. And, um, I still think that a book that they compiled years ago, um, well, anyway, the, the title is Markets Not Capitalism. It's meant to be kind of a uh, kind of you know incendiary, right? Um oh yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, yeah. Fun, it's all about foundation fun. for me. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I think that's one of the best economic texts just on the planet ever done. Uh so Agreed. love what those guys do. And my second question is why are you not a pope at the uh, church of Discordia? <laughs> Come on. Maybe I need to make that happen. <laughs> I mean, you've got a doctorate in divinity. I figured that'd be, you know. Yeah, yeah. I'm one of those weird uh, uh, atheists that has one of those. <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, boy, Church of Discord. There you go. Yeah. Uh, I figured it, maybe someday. Early. Yeah. So, um, well, first of all, let's. Um, you're passionately involved in. Um, Zog. Why, why don't you tell me why you, why you like Zog so much, and what, what, what's your passion regarding that? Well, you know, I mean, this is something that, that goes back, uh, uh, well, to, frankly, to the day I was born. So um, ethnically, uh, I'm considered Jewish, and, uh, you know, that leads you down certain roads, I think. And uh, <laughs> um, so Zog has been something I've been uh, involved with uh, for, for some time. And uh, I've really put a lot of my, my creative efforts uh, behind that. And, you know, it's just something I, I've wanted my creative efforts through Zog to really take over the world, you know, and, and to really, really dominate things. 
and, and just just very subversive, insidious, you know, cultural memes that I get to put out there through Zog. You know what I mean? Right. I, I definitely know what you mean. And by Zog, we're obviously talking about Zomia Offline Games, which is your <laughs> uh, your your game. <laughs> I hope well you got done with that. Yeah. <laughs> um, Zomia Offline Games. So you're a a, a game creator, correct? Yes. Uh, yeah. Could you tell us a little bit about? Why sure, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah so, <laughs> so sad. Yeah, I, I thought that was great, sec. Uh, yeah, so now the name is on purpose, by the way. Uh, Zomia Offline Games. Part of it was, I mean, because actually I am ethnically Jewish, you know, for whatever that's worth. Uh, and we could get into a lot of history around that, but part of the reason that I named my game company Zomia Offline Games was for it to end up with uh, with those letters. Really what I was wanting, or, you know, for that that acronym, what I was really wanting to happen there was I was hoping that some YouTuber would just end up doing, like, basically free marketing for me and, you know, somehow say that, you know, I'm part of some giant conspiracy or something like that. That was my hope. But none of that ever really happened. Regardless, the name Zomia, uh, of course, is famous by uh, an author, James C. Scott. Now, he didn't come up with the term. It actually was come up with many years before. Uh, but Zomia is an area in, in Asia, uh, like in the Himalayas, that area, uh, that is basically ungoverned. And uh, James C. Scott, the author, did a book called The Art of Not Being Governed. And he talks about this area called Zomia, where it's just such an impossible area, really, for authoritarian structures to to control because it's so mountainous and, you know, and other things. Uh, and a lot of different um, populations would run to this area known as Zomia. They didn't call it Zomia, but others did um, to get away from basically falling into, you know, status societies and, and different like, you know, domination cultures. It's a really fascinating stuff. And so my game company, I wanted my games to be strictly anarchist. That was really important to me. Um, I mean, it's good to have a differentiator whenever you're creating something, uh, but there was a severe lack of anarchy in games. Uh, and if there was any kind of anarchy or anarchism, it was generally, you know, in the pejorative, it was seen as a negative, it was derogatory. Uh, and I wanted to really change that. So a few years ago, um, I started developing games and it was under my company, Zomia Offline Games. So Zomia represents the anarchism. The offline represents that I don't like the, uh, I don't know, whatever you imagine with mobile games where they charge you insane amounts of money for in-app purchases or downloadable content or any of that. I wanted to, you know, it to be known that when you buy the game, it's one and done, it's finished, it's yours, off you go, you know, have a good time with it. Um, it's nothing that requires you to have an internet connection. And of course, the games part of that whole title is pretty you know, self-explanatory because it's games. Um, yeah, so Zomia Offline Games, I have, I have two games to date. One is called Hypercronius. Yeah, Hypercronius. Try saying that three times fast. And the other is called Ninja Trek. Um, and they all play into a much larger sovereign universe, as I call it. That, that actually, in some ways, ties in with my podcast. Not that you need to know anything about my podcast to enjoy the games. Um, but they're, they're games that are, again, the anarchism's there. There's lots of ideology, lots of philosophy inside of them. Frankly, there's also lots of sex. You know, uh, <laughs> I don't think there's enough video games with that kind of thing in it. Uh, and yeah, it's just uh, just making, you know, like a, a six year old Brian Sovereign's dreams uh, or not a six year old. Sorry, uh, but <laughs> six year old and making games and then maybe, a, a you know, much older Brian Sovereign enjoying, uh, you know, 
lot of this expression of different ideologies and sexuality and whatever else in games. So uh, yeah, good time. They're available on itch and, and a couple other game stores out there. Uh, but that's, that's been a, a fun project and, and business for me for some time. That's one thing I've enjoyed about uh, your podcast for three years is you really have created an alternate universe over there in some ways. Um, and it's, it's different. It's not something you see on, on many podcasts. It's not just some guy talking to you, you know, episode after episode, you have like, you know, short stories and yeah, and little, you know, mo- almost movie clips and, and that kind of thing. And, uh, but what does, what makes, uh, how do you introduce anarchism into a game? Like, um, sure. Are you um, reading, are you just sitting there reading Benjamin Tucker while, you know, <laughs> like, you yeah. know, uh, <laughs> there might be a time or two where I may have directly quoted Benjamin Tucker. I, I, okay. I wouldn't be surprised. Nice. Fair enough. Yeah. Yeah. Big fan of that guy. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, injecting, you know, uh, uh, like anarchism into games, uh, a lot of it does come to like, I mean, for example, my first game that I made Hypercronius, uh, that came down to where, well, I, I guess I'll give away some of the plot. Um, I don't mind because frankly, people could, you know, I mean, my games do cost money, but if they somehow ended on torrent sites or wherever else, totally for free. In fact, I might've been the one to post them, you know, and people go play them. Great. You know, I, I really, I'm not, obviously as an anarchist, I'm not one for IP or anything along those lines. Right. Um, so if you can figure out how to get this stuff for free, go ahead do it. But, uh, anyway, putting in anarchism into the game. So the storyline was essentially for the first game that, it was like taking place a hundred thousand years or, or more in the past. Uh, and you have Mars, you have a, a population on Mars uh, that look very human. Um, and the military on Mars ends up taking over basically everything. It's authoritarianism gone completely wrong and it ends up destroying Mars. Uh, and you find out that it was all about kind of an ideological genocide against a very specific group. Um, and so the storyline itself, I think, is what points out where you have characters that are essentially, you know, activists of a type. Um, and it's pointing out what the end game of authoritarianism is, which is basically, you know, the, the death of everything. Uh, and, you know, using Mars as an example, I think is a good one because, you know, you can look at Mars now if you believe we've been there. Uh, you know, some people think it's just nice shots of Arizona. But if you, if you think we've been to Mars, you can look at Mars. And you can see, wow, you know, what a wasteland. And I think that is the ultimate end of authoritarianism. So yeah, it, it was a perfect analogy. Ways. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, it, it, yeah. It's almost a death cult in some ways. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. That's a great way of putting it. I like that. A death cult. Yeah. So you, you mentioned James C. Scott, and, and I'm I'm a huge fan of James C. Scott. And, sure. Uh, so, it, you know, he his, um, his arguments are mostly against... Um, against civilization and pro um, barbarism, essentially not in the way that most people would think of it, but um, you know, free roaming without right. the trappings of the, you know, dominant culture, et cetera, not, you know, a war of all against all. He's not pro that, but right. Um, what, you know, he sort of holds up uh, barbarians as um, an example of, you know, free people. Sure. So what do you think um, now, you know, full disclosure, we spent like the last, three episodes bashing industrial civilization and <laughs> technology. And then we had you on. So that's what you're kind of up against. Um, what do you think the relationship is a uh, three part question? 
What do you think sure. the relationship is between technology and the state? What do you think the uh, relationship between um, people uh, and more um, importantly, the liberation of humans and technology is? And what do you think the relationship between uh, sort of the industrial system we have and humans is? Yeah. Um, so here's the great irony, right? So my show is called Sovereign Tech. Um, it's a tech show. It's been a tech show going for almost 10 years. And, you know, like, especially in the past three, four years, um, you, you couldn't find a guy who is so disillusioned with technology more, uh, I think than myself, which is ironic. Right. Uh, so I, I hear where you're coming from as far as like, you know, industrial civilization, like what, what the hell, you know, <laughs> what, what is this causing? What, you know, and is this is ultimately say like the industrial revolution that occurred, is this ultimately, um, a good thing? Uh, you know, it's a great, that your three-part question is great. Um, as far as, you know, the, the relationship between tech and the state right now, uh, the relationship is, I mean, it's not even kissing cousins. It's, you know, cousins in bed and, and doing, you know, whatever horrendous things, uh, together. I mean, it, it's really, there, there is no, there is no separation with what most with between what most people consider, you know, tech today, which is generally a smartphone and whatever else. And if you think of the companies that are producing all this stuff, you know, it's the tech giants, Google, Facebook, go down the list of them. Um, and really one is empowering the other and it, it go, it, it's corporatism, you know, all the way. And again, they really are just totally in bed with each other. I mean, they, they, there's nothing, there's no part of what they do. I think that where one is acting against the other uh, it's ironic, you know, that we see all the time, like we recently had, uh, whatever the Cambridge Analytica hearings with Facebook, you had the hearings mm -hmm. where Tim Cook and everybody from Google and whoever, you know, had to appear before the Senate. No, I mean, this is a dog and pony show, uh, because to somehow suggest that, you know, again, that, that the tech giants aren't acting, uh, without, you know, the, the purview of government or that government isn't taking advantage of all of the data that the tech giants are collecting. I mean, no way. Of, of course they're, they're working together. I mean, there, there have been plenty of books and a lot of people, uh, or I remember quite a few people up until recent years where they were saying, Oh, you know, this idea that, uh, uh there was an open door policy at Google for, um, you know, for government to be able to walk in or whatever, you know, some people said, Oh no, no, that's not true. That's not true. There really was, I mean, go, go from like 2011, we'll say, until about maybe 2016, 2017, there was a belief, I think, in a lot of libertarianism and like libertarian circles where they felt like, no, there was a difference, like that the tech companies were the heroes and they were keeping the government at bay uh, in some ways. And they were empowering us to have encrypted communications and all of in, encrypted this and encrypted that. And But I mean, that I don't think I, I really have a hard time imagining the person that still believes that that still believes these, these companies are working together. So technology as it stands today with your smartphone and the average thing that the person thinks of with technology uh, completely bolsters and empowers the authoritarian structure that is uh, the state. So there's that relationship. Mm -hmm. um, well and said. sure. Uh, so as far as how does tech work as liberation or as a, as a liberatory tool uh, for the people uh, it can work that way, but the people have to have the education and the knowledge on how to use it. Uh, 
uh, also on how not to use it, because that is really what got us here. Like how the tech giants are bolstering the state today uh, is because a lot of people just started using things, just bought that iPhone in 2007 or bought whatever. And it goes long before, of course, but just bought whatever. And they didn't think about, wait, what could this do? You know, uh, the most recent story out right now, say, is how Apple is going to be, you know, scanning uh, iCloud accounts. Yeah, I really want to bring that up. That is sure. just an absolutely horrific story. And, and and it's a big, I don't know, it's like a huge sea change in the sense that this is an ongoing um, relation. And it has been from the beginning. But mm-hmm. this is, a, I mean, the fact that they, they're going to scan like hashes of of every image saved on on the iCloud or the iPhone. I don't have an Apple products, but right. um very they're obviously very popular to um like in real time um com- compare those hashes against the government blacklist. And I don't care what the blacklist is or what the purpose is. Right. It's once you create that framework in those databases, it's it's a matter of just adding something to a database and you you and that's it. Yeah, absolutely. Horrible uh, I mean, story. Yeah, horrible story. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, where I think a lot of people are just, you know, when it happened, right, or when iCloud became a thing or cloud backup in general became a thing, you know, they instantly thought, oh, how wonderful. I can take so many pictures and I don't have to worry about pictures burning. And look, that was a valid concern for people to have. I mean, I can remember, you know, uh, my grandparents storing photo albums in, you know, fireproof safes. I mean, right? Like, you don't want to lose yeah. these things. And and so, sure, there was an actual, you could say, a, a market desire, uh, you know, for this cloud backup and to save your data and everything. And, you know, when, if you've been Absolutely. in technology long enough, I mean, sure, you know, you make backups of hard drives and everything. This is stuff that, that, that we want. And But the thing is, is that most people didn't think about, well, wait, where could this go? What could happen when we do? You know, I mean, most people didn't even think of, okay, well, what is the cloud? Well, the cloud is really just somebody else's computer. Do you really want to put your data on somebody else's computer? Now, if you frame it that way, I think most people, even people who say aren't so tech savvy, would instantly say, well, no, no, I want it on my computer. Okay, well, then keep it on your damn computer, right? Don't don't, don't send it off to someone else's. Um, and yeah, I think it, it would be good to talk about the, I, the iCloud story. But basically, tech can be... I mean, to, to get to that second part of that question, tech can be that liberatory tool, but you have to know how to use it and you have to, you got to have some foresight into, you know, how it can be used against you. As many advantages you may see, eventually you may see that there's actually, you know, that the negatives become net, right? They're net negatives. Um, so I'm not at, at this stage in the game, I will admit, and this is probably the first time I've ever said this anywhere. I've never really directly said it on my show, but I feel like the, the, if you could call it a, a tech war, and I don't mean like the William Shatner novels from the nineties, but a, a, you know, a tech war is in, okay, who has control of the technology? Is it the tech giants and the government, you know, is it corporatism or is it the people? And I very, in, in a very real way, I feel like that war is essentially lost. Uh, and the government is one, you know, like there's no, you know, I've spent, I've written books on how to secure mobile devices and things like this. Um, I think the mobile device is a completely lost cause. Uh, like you're just not going to, you know, you can say, Oh, I'll use signal. I'll use this. I'll use that. a, A lot of that is speaking of dog and pony shows. A lot of that is just a dog and pony show. 
it's so easy to circumvent, you know, anything being done on uh, on a mobile device. No, you're on the networks. You're on. You're in their frameworks. You're you're absolutely commuting communicating in their. I don't know their their, their realm, their entire realm. Mm-hmm. It requires the all the infrastructure and all the um, all the companies that are working together up and down the um, you know all all different levels of, of infrastructure, right? And uh, in, in networks talking to other networks. Obviously, you're yeah the mobile device obviously and the way the even just the, by the way it operates but i mean at the, at the same time you know not they're very convenient and yeah oh very absolutely if you you can also operate parts of your life segment parts of your life and not use these devices that were not at all ubiquitous and certainly i mean smartphones really aren't even the same thing as cell phones were but they weren't smartphones they did not exist before sometime what was it, you know, mid 2006, 05, right? Maybe whenever the first iPhone came out, you know, people functioned. You can, you can certainly segment a large portion of your life. And yeah, they're very convenient for people's day to day lives. And I think that's a decision you can make, you know, in a very nuanced way. But um, no, no, you're, there are certain things that you're not going to be able to do and be, have that level of security. Uh, one, feature of an app notwithstanding right yeah that's just a choice you, I, th- I think people have to make and i think people can maybe make hopefully make that in, in a nuanced way and kind of understand how does this tech work what are the vulnerabilities i mean i i went through a stage where i wanted to be down on tech and use a lot less of it and then i got to the point where like i live a day-to-day life where it's as convenient for me and a, and a lot of other people i know they're very security conscious but mm-hmm. how does it work? What are those specific vulnerabilities? And that's just a fact of life. Just li- living in, in, in a world of this technology. Everything requires networks, infrastructure, things that are going to necessarily be these capital, um, capital intensive, you know, corporate controlled parts of the state until we really get to a point where, where things can really be decentralized in a way, you know, and I think that might be part of the tech revolution that's coming, sure. but, yeah, and that, that might and that might be. What do you what do you think about that? Do you think that, that as things go on, I mean, there was a web 2.0 and a 3.0. Is technology going to eventually come under a certain kind of revolution where maybe things become able to be decentralized and ubiquitous enough that it doesn't require these kind of, um, you know, these kind of capital intensive, infrastructure intensive kind of. Um, Forms yeah, of technology. where basically it's not part of surveillance capitalism, which I, I, I love that term. Because it can uh, be. It doesn't have to be, I guess. It doesn't have right. to be. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the first thing that, that you you, you kind of have to win over, win over some minds on it. I think it can get, like, it could happen, right? It's just the, the incentives aren't there to, to not take part in surveillance capitalism, right? Because you get, I mean, so many companies, even startup companies, get their funding, you say, oh, they get their funding from, you know, whatever, they run a, a seed round and, you know, they get their investors and angel investors and whatever else. Yeah, that certainly happens. But a big part of it is, is that they're selling off that data that they collect, right? Um, you know, why why hasn't Google or iOS or, you know, or Apple uh, taking care of all of these malicious apps up until recently or something like that? Well, they were harvesting all that data that they were collecting. I mean, it was as they had the same incentives to have it there in the first place. Um. So as far as can we get back to that? I mean, so you got to win over some minds. And the first argument I think we got to convince people of is that there was an internet before Google existed. Most people think that that's just not so, right? 
Um, there was an internet, frankly, even before Yahoo existed, you know, and, and who even like really remembers Yahoo these days. Uh, I always think it's amazing when somebody still has a Yahoo email address. I love it. <laughs> it's like, well, all right. Yeah. Been around for a while. Hotmail. <laughs> so, yeah. Or AOL. AOL. Right? I, I still, I see AOL. Uh, kind yeah. of retire, retirees but you know yeah exactly exactly you, you kind of instantly know okay if they have an aol.com account we know we have an idea on their demo uh <laughs> so but yeah um you know i mean but that that's that's the hard part to i think to get people to understand is that when you say stop using google they think you're saying stop using the internet right they think you're saying you know you, you can't have any of these conveniences uh, when that's not true at all, the internet existed perfectly well, you know, before Google ever came around. Um, the internet existed, frankly, perfectly well before, you know, you could argue before, uh, um, you know, the first, well, there weren't even MacBooks at the time. They had different names. But, you know, before a lot of modern computers or what people think computers should look like, you know, was were able to access it. Um, you know, the peer, like your decentralization, I love that. I'm a big fan of that. Uh, you know, getting to a peer-to-peer future, I think that that's important that we can get there. But there's just so much education that that has to happen to get people to understand that. And there is the eternal trade-off um, between security and convenience. You really, I, I I know so many try so hard to say, oh yeah, no, no, we we can have security and convenience. Uh, I I think that's a that's that's a fool's errand and a lie uh, at worst. Um, Convenience is great, but understand that like the more convenient that it is where it's like instantly pulled out of your pocket, et cetera, uh, there's a good bet that you're giving up security on that in some way. Um, you know, for example, I mean, we have so many issues with, uh, you know, just people, you know, like leaks of, uh, of passwords and, you know, of, of account information and everything. When we could solve, you know, the whole password problem. Uh, you know, the username and password problem that exists, we could solve that right now. In fact, the, I mean, the solution already exists. It's called Squirrel, you know, made by Steve Gibson. Um, but nobody's implementing it. Why? Because it's just not that convenient. It's secure. It solves, you know, a lot of these data breaches, uh, data breach issues, but no one wants to do it. Or, you know, we could we could get rid of passwords using YubiKeys, right? Using, a, you know, hardware two-factor authentication. Um but it's not very convenient. And everybody's like, oh, what if I lose it? What if I lose my little hardware device? What if I lose my YubiKey or something like that? And you get all these, you know, arguments as to why, you know, they're not willing to do it as to where, you know, turn it around and express the importance of why you want the security for whatever you're trying to secure, say with a YubiKey or with Squirrel or, you know, these differing technologies. And one would hope that they'd be incredibly cautious with it to the point that they'd never lose it, you know? So there's, there's a massive amount of education that really has to happen. Uh, I think to where we could get to a peer-to-peer future where you could have technology that respects and serves and bolsters the individual instead of the state. Well, I think part of it, um, so part of it is education, but the other part is people are acting based upon incentives. Mm -hmm. And these these, um, these, um, corporate giants and, and the government, to me, these are both this, this, they're just different arms of the state. Yes. And they make these things, um, you know, and there's various reasons for this, but they make these things very easy and accessible and they don't want them secure. I don't, I don't think these companies want them secure really. No. Um, um, so, you know, people are going to pick the easiest option and it's, it's a systemic problem. You know, you have all these incentives in place that most people are just going to choose these things, uh, 
for those reasons. And mm -hmm. um, these incentives are in place because of the structure of our economy and production. You know what I mean? So I don't see, uh, I don't see how, even if you educated everyone tomorrow, um, it's still going to be cheaper and easier to do things uh, for a lot of people the way they're being done now. Yeah. And, and, and it's cheap, right? Like as an in inexpensive, um, yeah. I mean, even though we can say, well, this iPhone costs a thousand dollars or something like that. Yeah. But people don't have to buy a thousand dollar iPhone. They can buy the I mean, $70, you know, Android phone or whatever. And right. um, of course the problem there is, is they don't, and again, this speaks to the education. They don't understand, wait, how is it possible that I can buy a smartphone that's only $70, you know, that a smartphone that's a thousand times more powerful than my $2,000 Tandy from 1994, you know, like, wait, how does that happen? You know, things are not getting cheaper, but somehow this is cheaper. And of course, again, that speaks to the education. The reason that it's cheaper, it's because it's essentially funded, uh, you know, by what you could call adware, by spyware, which I think it is ultimately, and then ultimately malware. It's funded by the data collection, you know, like all this stuff is subsidized. Uh, you know, essentially by uh, actions or by technologies that are that are ultimately against the consumer and against the individual. Um, but, you know, you say that to somebody and they're like, yeah, but but I want my hundred dollar phone. <laughs> right. And, right. And so it, it that's it, it's it's such a massive issue. Um, and I mean, I'll admit, you know being somebody who's been out there for 10 years trying to, you know, like alert people and let them know, Hey, this is what's going on. Like, no, you should not be able to buy a computer for uh, $200. There is no, you know, there, there's no way a computer can cost $200. Like, It's got to cost at least six or seven as in it's got to cost that just to justify the hardware you have in your hands. Um, you know, you, I mean, you say that and, and you just get a lot of times, frankly, you get glassy eyes, right? You know, <laughs> everything just glazes over. It's like, yeah, but, but I only have $200 and I understand that. And I empathize with that uh, all the way. Um, but it, it just comes down to, we, you know, so many people don't know the actual cost of everything that makes up, dare I say, our modern interconnected world. Yeah. I mean, you kind of made, you know, you kind of bolstered my point there is, uh, so, you know, the computer's 200 bucks. And like you said, there's um, somebody's living a paycheck to paycheck that needs a computer for whatever thing in their daily life. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they might not have $200. And, and then it comes right. back to, well, this might be a structural poverty issue, you know, where this, this system we have, you know, it makes uh, it a uh, required necessity to have X, Y, Z things and makes, <laughs> makes uh, um, you know, the, the wealth that most people can accumulate only just so much so they can just barely afford, you know what I mean? So it's a, it's a, it's a economic structure problem. It's, it's, that is the system that we have today. Oh yeah. The, yes, exactly. Yeah, right. And so, the, the system is operating as planned. I mean, right, exactly. <laughs> like, like, how it's so supposed to be. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, so again, it, you can't, it's, it's easy to say we can, we can educate somebody. It's a whole lot um, harder to, to, justify that even if you know the 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 risks and benefits if you're you know a mother of three trying to put food on the table and you need a computer for work or you know what i mean like so absolutely no you're yeah. you're totally right i mean even me i have to you know i use a smartphone um mm -hmm. yep. i mean essentially i literally have to i mean i could jump through some hoops to where i could you know emulate a smartphone say with my computer 
Um, there, you know, there's, there's ways around that, but I'm still going to be interacting with Google or Apple, depending upon a person's choice. Um, and, and yeah, I, I mean, I can, I can really empathize with that person that, that it just seems like they, they need it, uh, because in a very real way, at least at this stage in my life, you know, so do I, um, I think that penguin, I think you were hitting on something great there. Uh, and that I'm also, you know, a real standard bearer for that we can segment our life. And that has frankly become, I mean, it's the right way to go. It's a great direction to, to go into where, okay, yep. I have to have a smartphone, but I am going to put that thing in its place, right? Like I'm going to make sure that it is only used for work or it's, you know, whatever, where it, wherever it's need is, it's only going to be used for that need. Um, and yeah. that's a direction that we can go. And I mean, the other, like the irony is, is that because we have so many cheap devices, I mean, I'm even supportive of as, as kind of counterintuitive as this may sound is having multiple devices because it's to that point where you've got to have the specific device to just get out of the mindset, you know, even to, to get away from thinking about work or whatever. And, you know, I mean, ever since 2020, you know, I mean, so many people are remote working, like the work-life balance is just completely thrown, you know, thrown astray. Uh, yeah. So doing, doing that segmentation. Yeah, go ahead, Penguin. Well, yeah, I, I totally you just have something really good segmenting, segmenting your devices. So like uh, you can have some some uh, you can have maybe a phone that's like or a tablet that's um, like uh, rooted and it's got open source apps or it's only got certain secure apps. Maybe it's not you don't take it that far. Maybe you have a device. Maybe it's maybe your phone. You might have all sorts of apps, um, you know, credit cards or uh, you apps for ordering food off of but you don't worry mm -hmm. about security on that apps on, on that device so you you do all your unsecure stuff your your interaction with kind of the corporate world on that one device and then you have you know your your laptop running linux uh, linux distro or something and right. you kind of segment those things apart from each other so it's not like you don't participate or you don't use any of those things but you have you have kind of clear distinctions on 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 which what you do with each device and i think something like that kind of makes a lot of sense for most people and, and for most people's needs if they are conscious about this kind of security thing. Yeah, I, I totally agree with you. You're right on. Um, I mean, in, in the world that we exist in right now, uh, I think it's just one of the best things that people can do is to segment that because then, you know, when you do go shopping or you go out or whatever you're doing, you know, you're not carrying Google or Apple with you um, and they're not tracking, you know, everything you do necessarily. Um, I mean, you know, then you can get into, I mean, you know, how far do you go with this stuff? Uh, I mean, I think a lot of people hear these kinds of arguments and they say, okay, well, I guess I got to go get sand out of my backyard and bake my own processors and everything. Right. And it's like, no, you know, let's, let's not get into ad absurdum here. Let's not get crazy. Uh, but, you know, even taking these steps at the very least can bolster your, uh, your mentality. Because that's, that's part of what's happening. I mean, so many people today are like waking up and they're just instantly going to their notifications. Right. And so from the moment they wake up, they are wondering about the system, you know, they are wondering, okay, what's going on in the system instead of being in their own head and wondering what's going on for me today. Uh, and I mean, it's no surprise in my opinion, you know, that so many people just seem to kind of follow like a, a mass mentality it's because, yeah, I mean, it, it's almost like all these brains are connected, right? Because there isn't that segmentation. And a lot, a lot of times people today just, you know, don't spend any time in their own head. Hmm. Let me go back to something else you said. Um, 
So you mentioned the the sort of the relationship between uh, tech giants and the government, mm-hmm. and you know the thought that maybe some libertarians had that um, they were somehow um, you know fighting on our side or for for liberation, and that's um, you know uh, quite obviously not the case. But do you think that this is any different in kind uh, to you know two hundred years ago um, when you had giant manufacturing companies that were in bed with the government this is to me this is more or less just the way this system has always been it's just a um, slight slight difference in degree and and the technology has moved forward that's that's the only difference i see and so Mm -hmm. do you think that um do you think it can go any other way um i guess is my question um if so, let you know the relationship between like big oil or textile industries or mm-hmm. U.S. steel or, and the, the government was much the same as it is with Google now, um, or you know Amazon or any of these other companies. So, as long as we have this sort of this uh, this structure that we've had for the last mm, two hundred and some odd years, um, do you think it can be any different? You know what I mean? Like, uh, is it yeah is it always going to be a collusion between? certain industry not just tech either um industry giants and uh you know it's the political class it's uh, the right. industry giants and the government it's right including to control the rest of the population yeah it's it's the oligarchy i mean yeah. exactly <laughs> call it what right. it is you know uh and we don't have to say that i mean what, was it princeton university about yes. eight years yeah, ago they did that yeah. that study where they said oh no america's an oligarchy like you know so you don't have to take it from anarchists you know the, your, your own uh uh universities will tell you but um yeah well you know so it's a funny thing i i like that you bring in the history on this uh you know going back to maybe you know the starts of the industrial revolution and so on Uh, a lot of people don't realize that when electricity was just becoming a thing Mm -hmm. in america there were a significant amount of americans and this was actually true all over the world but you know we'll use america for example here who didn't want anything to do with it and particularly farmers where they knew that they were going to, they were going to lose autonomy because of this. They didn't want it. And they did, they felt like they didn't need it. Right. And people are absolutely allowed and it's absolutely right of them to only want and use the level of technology that serves their purposes. Right. Not everybody are, I mean, the way the system's set up, it seems like everybody needs a smartphone, but ultimately not everybody needs one anyway. Um, so what a lot of people don't realize is that when electricity was first getting rolled out in America, uh, electric companies were actually, and, and government at, at times where it was needed, were paying people to get connected to the grid because they didn't see the point. They're like, well, wait, why would I want this? Like, and then I'm going to have to, you know, eventually you're going to, you know, talking about the electric companies or the government, you're going to win out on this. So this isn't ultimately good for me. Why am I going to want this? Um, but that's, you know, that, that's the thing is that a lot of times we think, oh, wow, electric, electricity was just this great and wonderful thing. Why wouldn't you want it? Well, there's people who had plenty of good reason not to. And it was so it was such a scenario that government and, and electrical companies felt that, well, we need to we need to pay the people to, to access it because otherwise they're never going to connect to us. Um, so that's that's something to keep in mind. Uh, that said, you also have where. On the flip side of this, um, now that doesn't mean I'm not saying that electricity is necessarily a bad thing. Um, 
But there are a lot of technologies that have ultimately gotten sold to us as, oh, this is going to take humanity here and there. Everything's going to be great and wonderful when that was all a marketing pitch, right? That, that was all that was all sales pitch to achieve other aims. I mean, even you look at the space program, right? Like, you know, NASA uh, and so on. The space program had nothing to do with getting humanity, uh, you know, the everyday person into outer space. The space program had to do with setting up spy satellites to see what Russia was up to. Um, and a P- PR for the Cold War. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, yeah. exactly that. So, you know, that, that's one of those technologies where like, oh, this is this freeing, wonderful thing, yada, 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 when that's not what it was about at all. You know, again, that was all very much um, marketing. Now, that's not to say that, I mean, and and the government certainly obviously, you know, has their, their, their finger on the pulse of what new technologies are being developed if they're not even funding it themselves. Um, there was a video that came out a few years ago. I want to say this is around 2016 that it was leaked. The intercept, uh, the, the, the media outlet, they leaked it um, from the Pentagon and it was a training video and it was talking about, I want to say it was the year like 2022 or so, or maybe it was 2032, but it, it was, you know, just like 10 years into the future, basically. And in this video, they are warned the Pentagon. Again, this is a training video for, you know, whoever kind of people would sit in the Pentagon and have to wonder about how are things going. Um, in this video, they were saying that, well, in a few years, we're, you know, people are going to have, and they were concerned about cryptocurrencies. They're, they're listing off all these different technologies. Basically they're talking about the peer to peer future and they're saying this is coming and the system as it stands, or they're saying, you know, the military, in this case, the military cannot stop it. So we have to figure out how to stop this from happening. Okay. So essentially the future that I think a lot of technologists uh, and futurists even, you know, may want like myself anyway, or freedom oriented uh, uh, technologists will say, you know, this kind of peer to peer future, clearly the Pentagon thought that it was possible. Um, and, and they're terrified of it, terrified of it so much that they had to make however many hundreds of thousands of dollars of a, of a training video uh, to, you know, to get um, whatever military leaders up in arms about the matter uh, to put a stop to it. So, yeah, I do think it's possible. And this is often how I say it in my show. I do think it's possible to live within the cracks of this, you know, technological dystopia that really we're already living in. Um and to do so, uh, and using technology, you know, using something that might be somewhat similar to a smartphone, but I think it would have, you know, uh, a pretty different purposes and overall design. Um, but we, we'd be living in the cracks on that. Uh, you know, I, I don't know that I, I just, myself, I have a hard time believing that you're going to get a mass of people, like a large amount of people that are going to get it and understand that, okay, we need to move technology in this direction where it respects the individual and not where it's more about that convenience, right? Like I, I, I very hard to believe, but yes, I do think, to, I mean, ultimately to answer your question, I do think we can take technology in a direction that empowers us and, you know, uh, dissolves power uh, from the government and everybody else. I remember the video you were talking about, and I probably heard about it on your show, but they, mm-hmm. essentially they were even making, um, weren't they making zones and such about certain places would be just completely ungovernable? And, yes. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. 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 I do remember you talking about that. It must have been on your show that I heard that, but that, 
that makes see things like that that make me optimistic. So I, I right. I hop between optimism of like, well, maybe this can really bring about some, you know, uh, building um, ungovernable spaces and that sort of thing and, and, and places for liberation. And I jump between that and I need to go live in a cabin in the woods. And, <laughs> yeah. Like it depends on which day I'm on and what I've seen that day. But yeah, <laughs> um, I'm, that's about where where I'm at. And um, I think you're right. And I think even in well, that's the thing, though, is it's it's the best of times. It's the worst of times. So like even in the worst you know, most brutal authoritarian dictatorships, of course, liberty minded people always carved out spaces in the cracks. You know what I mean? Um, right. You know, even Foucault wrote about this a little bit about, uh, you know, even in the, the worst, you know, tyrant kingdoms, there was, you know, the, uh, people that created whole spaces outside of their sovereign sovereignty, you know, it's just, right. that's just the way it, it always has. And maybe it has to get real bad before, there's a necessity for these things to kind of flourish. I, I don't sure. know. Yeah. I'm glad that you see that we kind of live in a technocratic dystopian future. And uh, that, Oh yeah. Yeah. And that you have a tech show and I, I recognize that dialectic and I appreciate it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This is great. Honestly, it really is. And um, yeah, I mean, you really opened my eyes. Of course, of course the uh, Pentagon and all the, experts they have I mean, with DARPA and not in the in the um, universities and, and, and throughout the whole establishment of course they realized what the potential of the technology was and they saw it on the horizon mm -hmm. and, and they, they th that makes so much sense and they said this could be really really bad for just the concept of government the, the definitional concept of government if everybody if if like peer to peer, if using the layer of the internet the global thing that it was already pervasive but at that point was people were able to basically uh do everything peer to peer and of course we were already seeing the very beginnings of the you know file sharing and torrents and whatnot right but uh yeah they they had to it's not a matter of like shut it down but it's just like align with the incentives of of like corporations of or i should say of investors that we would invest in corporations to kind of corporatize it. And that kind of serves a dual purpose because it makes it all legible and kind of um, responsive to the state and state involvement. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I, I, yeah, I completely agree. I mean, that's, that's where we're at. Um, and I mean, <laughs> you know, well, like what you're saying, sec, I'm, I'm, I'm more, more days than not. I'm go run off and live in a cave. Uh, <laughs> then as far I'm I mean I'm not the only one I feel crazy sometimes when I say that but yeah no no I think we're the same ones <laughs> okay, okay. okay good yeah well and you know way more about technology than I am so you must be terrified every day actually so um yeah what's, so what, what's the move man like what what's the uh let's uh where's some optimism what's uh some solutions you, what I yeah, mean, we sure. talk about segmenting our lives in our technologies and such, and that sounds you know good and fine. But let's say, um, what what's the best course of action if you want to prevent any sort of third party, whether that be government or corporations or some sort of malicious actor, um, from uh, engaging in electronic surveillance of your devices? What's what's your best course of action? Yeah, uh, well, I think the 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 easiest thing that anybody can do right now, um, and it doesn't have to be an expensive affair, is, is to segment 
uh, you know, your devices, right? Like, like Penguin was talking about, you know, and I was bringing up, uh, like, like get that, start separating your life. Understand that when you are engaging with, you know, in your everyday work for most people, I mean, there are some people who make a living off of, you know, this whole freedom espousing thing. And I think that's great. Uh, but for, you know, a lot of your more everyday people, uh, yeah, start segmenting, uh, your life, you know, when you're engaging with work, understand that you're engaging with the system and maybe you're not, you know, dealing with your, with your own sanity because the other, you know, one of the, one of the big issues with the modern interconnected world that we're in is, I mean, we're just, we're bombarded with distraction far more than ever before. That might be, in my opinion, I mean, it might even be worse than the surveillance itself. It's just the rampant, uh, uh, yeah, just distractions everywhere, be it the advertisements or the notifications in your face or whatever, whatever that happens to be. Um, but, you know, so so the easy thing to do, again, is that segmentation. Um, where does it go from there? Uh, certainly, I recommend, you know, learn, you know, I mean, you don't have to learn how to code, but at the very least, get to understand um, even just the settings, say, on your device, like the iCloud uh, thing that, that we had brought up earlier. Um, you don't have to send, you know, photos to iCloud like that. You, you can turn that off. I mean, we could get into, you know, whether or not, well, it's a soft switch. And so, you know, maybe Apple's still collecting it anyway, and you don't know. And certainly there's evidence to suggest that, but we'll stick with, you know, what we do know, I guess here. And you don't have to send all of your photos off to iCloud to get scanned and potentially, you know, have uh uh, you know, men with guns knocking on your door. Um, you can, I mean, there, there's, there's apps that you can get now, uh, you can set up at home and, and these things have gotten a lot easier. Uh, you can set up like your own cloud at home. Basically you could set up uh, what they call network attached storage or a NAS. And if you want to keep all of your photos and you want to keep all like your music collection or whatever else, you can set all of that up to where it only backs up right at your home you know, uh, on a device or on a, on a, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's basically a server, but on your own server that is open source and you can have a pretty good idea that it's doing what you only, what you tell it to do and not what some third party elsewhere wants it to do. Um, so those, those are things that, you know, that people can do. And really, if we got, I'd love for things to go in that direction where basically everybody has their own server you know, and you get away from the cloud, from cloud computing in general, um, which we seem to be going more and more towards it, obviously, uh, even to the point where our operating systems are running in the cloud. Um, but if we got into that where we were, you know, it's almost like localization, like, you know, the whole idea of buy local, but instead, you know, keep your data local. Um, things like that would go a long way towards uh, thwarting, you know, the, the surveillance system, the surveillance society. Uh, that we live in. So I'd love it if people did that. Uh, I mean, another thing that, that people can do, you know, really like with your smartphone, I know it's convenient. I know it's wonderful. You're probably listening to this podcast, you know, while holding that smartphone. Um, and I'm, we're all honored, <laughs> but at the same time, you know, the, the mentality, mentality is everything. And I like to imagine that my smartphone is radioactive. You know, that this is like something that the more I touch it, uh, the, the more I'm going to get, you know, whatever radioactive effects <laughs> that, that are not good uh, from doing so. Um, you know, I think getting that mindset of these things that bolster 
you know, the surveillance society that we're in uh, and thinking of them as literally toxic. Even if you're just, you know, I mean, again, well, actually some people probably would argue that a smartphone is inherently technologically toxic, you know, because of, I don't know, whatever, 5G, 4G, you know, go down the list of it. But even just imagining it, I think, can be a very helpful thing to, to kind of get you away from that. So those are the things that you can do right now without losing too much, I think, of that convenience. As far well, as word, or go ahead. Sorry. So you do not have much hope for, well, let me rephrase this. I've, sure. I've had several arguments over cryptography, and I'm a fan mm -hmm. of cryptography. Now, don't Same. get me wrong. But um, I've had several arguments with people who think it is um, like magic. <laughs> you know, like it's the yeah. cure for all things. And I, right. I, one thing I keep repeating is like cryptography doesn't matter if they have keyboard recording software exactly yes. on your phone. Do you know what I mean? So um, not, none of that matters if they can read what's on your screen, you know? So mm -hmm. what, what are your, what are your thoughts on that? How number one um, is cryptography, what everybody thinks it is in, the, in that regard as, as safe as everybody thinks it is. And number two, do you think that they have um, the government, they, the government and some sort of elite corporations have, the uh, capacity to break encryption that we possibly don't know about either through some advanced computing or that sort of thing. Sure. Um, so cryptography uh, here, there's, there's an important uh, delineation to be made. Sure. The math of cryptography is solid. Like the, the math as in the actual programming. Okay. Unless somehow we run into a quantum computer of some bearing strength and whether or not anything like that, what is ever really going to exist is up to debate. Um, that asymmetric encryption that you're using is as solid as a rock and nobody's breaking that. Okay. By the math, but there's the math and then there's how it's implemented. And that's where the delineation comes from because as far as how it's implemented, uh, it could be implemented. I mean, you brought up one of the best examples of how easy it is to thwart the best math in the world. And that is you can be encrypted. You can be using the signal protocol. You could be using MT proto, whatever, whatever encryption scheme you want to be using, you know? Uh, but if you know, the, the, your keyboard is somehow being logged, all the encryption in the world doesn't matter. That said, if there's a camera nearby, all the encryption in the world doesn't matter, mm -hmm. you know? So uh, in fact, a, a famous example that I, I always love bringing up is uh, mosquito drones. So now for a lot of people, these things are considered, you know, conspiracy theory. Um, but even Snopes and, you know, however anyone feels about Snopes, even Snopes came out to say that when they were talking about this conspiracy and doing their, you know, usual debunking, they didn't debunk it. They just said, no, it's, it's entirely possible that there are mosquito drones out there. You know, so imagine that, like a, a drone the size of a mosquito that's just taking a picture of whatever you happen to be typing out. Um, I mean, DARPA released that whole, a bunch of, um, you know, articles and videos and stuff about the, the fly and bee robots right. that they have. That was right. like eight, ten years ago. What do you think they have now? You know what I mean? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah, or right. sensor dust. You know, I mean, I even when I was in the military, they were talking about that. So... Um, what's that what's sensor dust uh sensor dust is essentially little and and there'd be a bunch of different sensors on it but it'd be uh i'll use the star trek term and say it's like nanites that okay that okay. would get dropped from and it could get dropped from anything could be a drone could be from you know an f-18 or well an f-18 wouldn't be a good choice but uh you know wh whatever kind of flying vehicle you want to drop it from 
Uh, and actually, it doesn't even have to be from a flying vehicle. Somebody could just kind of toss it in the air. Uh, and it, it's just like, it looks like sand, but the sand puts together a picture of a certain area. Um, Whoa. And yeah. And so, and, and actually I think even Ray Kurzweil wrote about this stuff like years later, even after I had heard about it, he was writing about how DARPA was, it was in um, the singularity is near in that book. Uh, he wrote about it in there as well. So, you know, again, all the encryption in the world, I mean, I think it's good to use it, right? Because there's no need to make it easy for the authoritarians, mm -hmm. you know, and encryption, regardless of efficacy does make it harder. And so it's worthwhile to use just for that. But it's also something that, you know, is again, so easily thwarted with keyboard loggers, with mosquito drones, with a camera, just a camera. It doesn't have to be anything as wild or as advanced as mosquito drones or, or sensor dust. Uh, so, you know, that, that, that's, that's the concern around encryption. Uh, around cryptography overall, again, the math is sound and it can be implemented in ways where I think it can work, but you know, most of the companies that, that do, uh, uh, you know, make it available in ways that work or maybe on devices that work, we see that the FBI shuts those manufacturers down. Um, so, or whoever, you know, whatever authoritarian, you know, government alphabet soup organization, you know, ends up shutting it down. So there's that, um, as far as, Let's see. What, what was the other question on that? <laughs> there was cryptography and then. Oh, well, you kind of answered it. Uh, the, sure. um, the advanced uh, computing. So that, whether that's something that can brute force it or, um, you know, quantum computing or, or something of that nature. If, if um, you know, DARPA and the, the military are that much more advanced than, say, we are, is it mm -hmm. possible that they have computing that can break encryption that we just aren't don't know about, you know? What do you think? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, well, you know, the iOS uh, upload case or the iCloud upload case here, you know, story that, that came out recently. Um, I mean, that's essentially showing that these companies have backdoors, you know, really at the ready. Um, and it's not. The other issue there isn't even like reading what you're doing, but insertion and framing people, you know, oh, yeah. like that's one of the major concerns around the, the iCloud uh, uh, really, I, I would call it a scandal um, that that Apple's engaging in is that there is, you know, a point where kind of man in the middle almost where you could insert, uh, you know, say into an iCloud account, you know, what, whatever, whatever you want, you know, and you could set people up um, with that, you know, like insert child pornography into somebody's iCloud account and boom, then they're done. You, you know? know how dangerous that is for us and how valuable sure. that is to the state? Any, Absolutely. Any, anybody that steps out of line, oh, I'm sorry, it looks like you've got some child porn on your whatever device. And right. Meanwhile, you know, it's they're working with Apple and they just slipped it in there. That's yeah, exactly. incredibly insidious. Yeah. Okay, yeah, no, it really. Go ahead. Sorry. No, back to the cabinet in the woods. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Let's go. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, you mentioned uh, make, uh, thinking of your smartphone as as radioactive and that that made me think of another um i don't want to get into like 5g towers and, and yeah frogs, right, right. but um so you know many people make the point that sort of this uh, industrial system and uh, this technocracy and that sort of thing has um a lot of uh psychological effects on um human beings um not just because we're using our devices all the time but because of 
things like atomization and um, alienation from um, due to like sort of a hyper specialized environment and a very fast pace. Um, you know, we we have all these labor saving devices that we don't use to save labor. We just use them so that we have to labor more for these new devices. Yep. <laughs> yes. Right. Right. So it ends up being just like more and more of the, you know, the daily grind, the corporate cubicle lifestyle it just more and more of that to get the next new eye everything and it seems to have very detrimental effects on the psyche of um people as a whole mm -hmm. um and in lots of and it manifests in lots of different ways what, what are you what are your thoughts on that what's the um is there i mean i'm not yeah. asking you to solve the world here you know but like what do you what do you think about all that no i'll solve the world that's fine uh, no okay. <laughs> uh so yeah, I, this, again, that, that that speaks to the mentality, the psychological. That that's one of the the really major concerns here. Um, I mean, the, the simple part is that you know people want to get into an argument. And in fact, uh, Vint Cerf, who you know one of the the major guys behind the development of the internet itself, uh, you know, he came out a few years ago and said, "Well, privacy might just be a fluke." Like privacy, you know, maybe this is just something that came out of modern civilization or modern society even. And really, you know, it's not a big deal. It's not that important. Well, psychologically and through a lot of research, we know that not having privacy has absolutely detrimental effects on the human psyche. It, it creates constant stress because you think you're, you're, you're constantly being watched and you know, I mean, part of the issue there too, is that regardless of how well people understand this technology, people know what a camera is, right? And they know what a camera does. And even if they don't think that, you know, consciously, they don't think, well, this camera could be seeing what I'm doing right now. Um, unconsciously, they still know what a camera does, just like unconsciously, they know, you know, in the middle of the night to reach for the light switch, even though they may have no understanding of how electricity works in any way, shape or form. So, but unconsciously, you still know what the effect is, right? So unconsciously, you're surrounded by cameras and this creates a real low-lying stress. Um, and this is just cameras to say nothing of, of other matters, but this is just one example. They've done this studies on this. It changes your behavior completely. It changes yeah. who you are as a person. Right. To be constantly surveilled. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, so without, in, and I don't think it's just opinion, but I'll say in my opinion, uh, without question, you know, a lack of privacy is, is inherent. It, it is against the human condition. It is against your health, your human health. Um, privacy is, I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of the word rights, but privacy is, you know, an essential aspect of being a human being. You have to have it to be healthy in any yeah, way, I, shape or form. I get where the person might say uh, the concept of privacy that we have might be a construct of like, uh, you know, modernity, modernity, but like, uh, Outweighing that is the concept of, of, of a lack of privacy. The mm -hmm. same, and by the same token, the concept of a lack of privacy is also absolutely uh, in the kind of lack of privacy we're talking about is absolutely a construct of, of um, the recent monetary modernity, the, the cyber age, the age of digital technology. I mean, you know, there wasn't a question. You know, there wasn't a question in the Neolithic or in the Bronze Age how much privacy. Yeah, you might not be afforded privacy as a social construct mm -hmm. as a social construction as a social as an idea but there was no possibility there was no possibility of uh human beings you know surveilling one another 
right in this way and 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 then you know we're we're aware like you say on some level that that is possible and that's what happens when you when you do use technology i mean it's it's undeniable even if you don't know how it works even if you and even if you have a vague idea how it works then you have a then it's like uh you have the idea that it's pervasive especially after all the leaks and 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 rumors go around and when you when, when the potential surveillance is potentially so pervasive which it is Mm-hmm. And, and and when you have no idea to know who or if you could be under uh, some unknown level of scrutiny by some unknown, you know, spe- not known specifically what um, actor or group or whatever might be surveilling you or why, or if it's just all being scooped up as it is in many cases, you know, that's absolutely nerve wracking for I think anybody who wants to be aware of these kind of privacy and security concerns. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I I totally hear you penguin right on. And it's the, the history is an important thing to bring up. And I think this leads towards a big part of the solution. Ultimately a big part of the optimism, like you were saying, sec, you know, what is the optimism here? So, I mean, something to, to, to understand that, that people forget because, you know, as humans, we're an incredibly adaptable species and we really are, uh, it's part of the reason we're still around (laughs) amazingly. Uh, We, we, we adapt to changes very quickly. I mean, think about, you know, like we were saying earlier, the iPhone, the smartphone as a concepts really only been around since 2007. That's just now, you know, I mean, barely 15 years, right? That's no time at all, but now most people can't imagine a world without it. Um, For the thousands of years that humans have existed or the hundreds of thousands of years that there have been humans, your world as an individual was essentially about seven miles around you at any given moment, right? That's it. Seven miles. That's all you could, that, that's all that, that you could possibly interact with. Like you were saying, Penguin, you know, I mean, in the past, you know, the, the idea of, you know, uh, uh, King George surveilling on what you're doing in Iowa, you know, how, how could he know, you know, without sending a spy of some kind? And that's damned expensive, you know? Uh, and so we're very used to like genetically we're really, and, and even, even to some degree culturally, even though we've adapted quickly, but genetically we're very used to that, that, okay, no, the only thing that matters is whatever seven miles around me. Now here's the rub. And the reason that I'm bringing this up is that with the interconnected world, right. With the internet and so on. Now we're not just engaging with whatever, you know, uh, uh, just seven miles around us. Okay. A seven mile diameter. Now we're dealing with what's happening seven, you know, uh, 700 miles away, you know, or, or a thousand miles away or whatever, you know, now we're interacting with on such a large scale that our brains were just never meant to handle. Um, and we're also interacting with far more people than we were ever meant to, 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 to be able to handle. And, and not, and not interacting within the seven miles anymore. Right. So it's like we're interconnected all over the world, but we're not, we have less connections in our local and interpersonal relationships. Exactly. And I Which, think that's detrimental to the psyche as well. Yeah, absolutely. Because this is how people get fooled, right? Because now they have authorities that exist outside of basically their direct purview, right? There, there's appeals to authority that come from a thousand miles away that 
you can't really verify as to where before, you know, the news you got was from the person down the street or whatever, and you could converse with each other and you knew your reality, you know? And so, so that's a problem. Um, and I think this really speaks to, you know, one of the major issues with a lot of the interconnectivity and not that I'm against like the idea of something like the internet. I just think there's better ways to implement it. But um, part of the problem is I think a lot of people really feel an absolute loss of control because their lives are being controlled from a thousand miles away, not from down the street where city hall used to be or, you know, town hall or whatever. And because of that, I feel like that's, that's a major effect on the psyche where people just totally feel like they have, they've lost control of their own lives. And so to some degree, they want to, they want the distractions because they don't want to think about that. They don't want to think about how, how little control they feel they actually have. The reality is you have tons of control. And if you relocalized, uh, not just your mind, but, you know, also a lot of your actions, um, you could get control back. You know, um, I'm a, I'm a big proponent of, the, there's a, a Dr. Robin Dunbar and back in, I want to say it was the early eighties. He came up with what eventually would be called uh, Dunbar's number. 150. Yeah. 150. Right. It's anywhere between, you know, five to 250, 150. Okay. Like yeah. I've hit it at this. I think last episode actually it's like, okay. Right. I, yeah. Yeah. I didn't, I, I forgot that name, but I have heard it. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Remember I, I was saying, we were talking a lot about scale last time. Yeah. Um, you know, 50, 100, I said 50, 100, 150 groups of people. And I, and I just want to say, uh, about that. I don't even really care when it comes to that kind of scaling thing. I don't really care what the system is. I think a lot of our problems with systems are a matter of scale. Sorry, sorry yes. to interrupt, but that's kind of what I, that's a huge thing with me. That's with the decentralization. I think you picked up on that too. No, you're brilliant, Penguin. You're, you're totally on. Um, and that, that's exactly the point that I was going to go to, is that okay. we are dealing at scales that psychologically we're just not designed to handle. And while we yeah. can adapt quickly, there's, you know, there's some things where, again, like our technology has advanced faster than we have in this case. Like technology, as adaptable as humans are, technology has adapted faster. And because of that, we, you know, we can't, we can't adapt to this new world where, oh, I can instantly talk to 5 million people or however many people. And so that really gets to the optimism is I think that building systems or, you know, I don't like to use the word systems as far as, you know, wanting the individual to get free, but building uh, 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 groups, organizations, structures, we'll say that, that kind of surround this number, that surround the idea of, you know, okay, from five to 50 to 150, 250, whatever, you know, amount of people, then you get that, you will regain that sense. I think that sense of control. Um, and th there's all kinds of aspects to that where you'll feel better connection because you can't really feel connected to people via a tweet. Like it's just, there's, there's no way, there's no argument for that. Um, real connection comes from actually being in front of a person. I mean, you know, communication itself only, I, I, what does the research say? Something like only 10% of communicate of human communication is verbal. What that means is, is that a lot of what we're saying comes down to more than what, than the sound that comes out of our mouth. It comes down to body language. It comes down to what our eyes are doing. It comes down to, you know, all, all kinds of things. So, you know, if your interaction with people is not face to face, in my opinion, um, I mean, I think you're losing something. It's great for podcasting, no doubt. I'm not going to argue against that, but uh, but you're losing something. 
uh, when for things that matter, because there's so much more to read in a person's intent. And I think a lot of people would be better at not being lied to by politicians if the politician was just down the street instead of a thousand miles away. Um, so, yeah, yeah. I, I think we, we are dealing with uh, definitely scaling issues. And, and yeah. that's, that was the big thought that I had because um, we, we talk about people with a variety of different kind of um, I don't want to say political leanings, but just uh, ideas of kind of societal organization and relations. And um, sure. I don't think they really matter at that level so much as this, the scale itself kind of, you know, the decentralization, the lack of inherent lack of, I guess, uh, possibility of too many hierarchies. And then, you know, you know, not that that's a central feature. The central feature is that number, the people that people can be, or have to be accountable to each other right. in a market. They have to be accountable to each other. They're, they're approachable to each other. They see each other and hopefully, you know, probably are approachable but physically approachable, like they can see each other. And there's all this question of, of a, kind of absenteeism and uh, of absentee control, absentee ownership of like uh, the bigger you get, I think the more chunks of people have to kind of uh, set aside more and more of their own self-interest for the good of the collective. And that mm -hmm. goes the same, whether you're talking about some, some kind of explicitly socialist deal or like uh, the exact system, that we have now with this so-called rep representative democracy. I mean, people, people vote, but I mean, very little of people's actual self-interest is reflected in their, in their voting patterns and so, so, and that's just a consequentialist argument against this, this whole, uh, you know, representative democracy. System right. We have now, because I mean, it doesn't seem to be accomplishing the main goal that it's set to, um, put in place and i think that would be happen for all, all sorts of democracies. I mean, you could tweak this, tweak the, tweak the, uh, rules and make it, quite a good deal better at at some goals than this particularly you know bad system but ultimately you you end up with the same problem once you get outside that that number that number that we as human beings and i i hate it because it seems so essentialist but mm. i i really do i don't i don't i think okay is that really it are we just programmed to only be able to but it's just a it's just a capacity issue and and it's it's an issue of like to me, it doesn't yeah, even have to be a human uh, essentialist or human nature um, uh, argument, though. It, it could just as easily be, uh, you know, a practical or logistic problem. Yeah. Well, yeah. Yeah. There's only so much, you know, of your time that you can spend on, you know, there's only so many hours in a day. Right. So, and there's only so many days in a week and there's so many, so many weeks in a year to, for you as a human to interact with 350 million people in the, United States is not it is not physically possible, regardless of you know human nature or um, any kind of essentialist argument. It's just not okay, practical. Good. Okay, right. good because I was I was getting in a weird place where like is it this? <laughs> or that? Yeah, okay, okay. I'm I'm glad you agree with that 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 sure, side okay. of it. Yeah. Well, I I think you answered my question, Brian. But let me let me ask it anyway. Um, do you think you can have we can have our cake and eat it too? Do you think it can go both ways? So like right now, we have. Um, you know, uh, like you were saying, uh, everything is so uh, all of our focus is so far away. All of um, our communications are, are are with everyone from, you know, all over the world and such. And very little is it has to do with our, you know, direct sphere of influence, our, our interpersonal relationships, our local communities and that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, like right now I'm talking to you from 
whatever, 600 miles away. And this is great. Right. But right. So can we have that? And do you think we can have that and also have uh, a very localized and decentral decentralized uh, or uh, societal structure? Do you see what I'm saying? Or, or yeah. would, could we have some sort of like a mesh network of humans, you know, like, uh, yeah, I, I think so. Actually there's, you know, there's, there's organizational structures, like there's sociocracy, which is really, which was developed like in the seventies kind of came out of, you know, the sixties and the hippies and all that. Right. Um, where the idea is, is that you have, I mean, even just in human relationships where you have like these little circles and you have point people within these little circles, you know, that reach out to the other circles and it just keeps going like that. Um, you can have, I think that kind of mesh networking, like we could have an internet that covers the entire earth, but operates under the concepts of peer to peer. Um, that's entirely possible. Uh, I think that there are, there are certain aspects of technology that get in the way of us being able to really do that. Like we can have, you know, this meaningful conversation between three of us. However, you know, say, say I did a, a telegram room where now you can have like 5,000 people on the call at once or something. Um, that probably actually isn't going to be a very good podcast, right? <laughs> if, you, if you have 5,000 people going, yeah, not at all, like right? the, the beauty of podcasting, other than, you know, us all talking to each other, the beauty of it is that it's a one way street as far as to everybody else. You know, I mean, yes, they can email me, you know, they, or they can message you and they can do whatever. But um, but there, there's that very constrained and controlled flow of data as far as that goes, both uh, digitally and, you know, in reality and in meat space. Um, yeah, I think we I, I think we can have our cake and eat it, too, uh, as it were. Um, I think that. And and something I, I know I harp on it a lot on Sovereign Tech, but. The one thing I really think that's keeping us from that, I don't think we can have our cake and eat it too and share YouTube videos. Um, like video, the bandwidth of video is just so insane. Um, the, the the internet as a centralized infrastructure that it is can't handle really. Can't, I mean, there's so much cheating going on to make like even just YouTube work. Um Video's got to be something. I mean, I, I love movies, you know, and so fine, we can buy them on disc or something. But um, but video over this mesh network, say, is I just don't think that's ever going to happen. We're never going to reach the, the data transmission speeds or the network uh, stability to where, you know, we can have this interconnectivity like we're doing right now and at the same time have 4K video. Like, it's just not, I, I just don't see that. requires uh, a highly centralized um you know um system is that what the yes. argument yeah okay. yeah absolutely and, and and again even the centralized system doesn't work uh it it fails when you really try to do it like there's no such thing as actual like live video not i mean not not like live video that goes out to millions of people you can have live video like say we you know we could use whatever software to do video one to one but i mean even when just a couple of years ago when twitter tried to live stream the super bowl it crashed. I mean, like their servers just died because so many people, you know, I mean, and, and again, I would just argue it's just not possible uh, to do most of Google's, like a lot of their computational work is all on developing algorithms that compress video more and more and more without theoretically losing quality on that. But that's how, I mean, so much of Google goes to, goes to powering that video compression uh, because again, it's a cheat. It's not, yeah. Video, video just, just kills the whole concept. So if people can get beyond needing Netflix, 
we absolutely could have a peer-to-peer mesh network that is that respects the individual, empowers the individual. Uh, you know, and 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 frankly, we could do things that that blow away whatever gets done on the internet, minus the video. Okay, could we have that in parallel with the existing system, like in the existing world? Yeah, you know, so this is something I've been I've been pushing for a while. I mean, you know, there there used to be a joke um where where like or there was a kind of a cultural meme of that southern people called the internet, they called it the internets. Uh I think internet should be considered a totally viable term. Uh that like that's mm. there there should be multiple networks. There should be multiple internets. Um, I use the term all the time and sometimes you get sideways glances from people and, but I'm being deadly serious, you know, in that, yeah, no, we need multiple networks. And I, I think you can, you, you could have both um, in many ways you already have both, right? I mean, the government has their own infrastructure, right? They have Sippernet, Rippernet uh, that are alternatives to the internet. Um, so Sure. There's, there's no reason that it can't be. I mean, that's another one of those mental hurdles. I think that we have to get people over is that no, like, except that maybe there's going to be multiple internets in the future. And if we could get people to that, I think then that, that would go a long way towards our, our peer to peer dreams. So yeah. apparently I can't go one podcast episode without mentioning Carl Hess community technology. Right on. Have you, have you ever apparently- read that? But apparently, also James C. Scott. By the way, you've I think you've yeah, mentioned every him single almost time. I don't every know why. Episode. Every single yeah. time, yeah, I don't know. It just comes so up. Two guys. Well, Hess is I actually I'm I've been exposed to a lot of Scott's ideas of you know through osmosis or whatever. But mm-hmm. oh, Hess Hess is absolutely essential to us. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, uh, a, community technology is phenomenal book. Uh, go okay, ahead. good. I'm glad you read it. So you, you kind of understand where I'm going with this. Is like um. I think that number one, uh, sort of local and uh, not just for tech, not well, not just for like digital technology, but local and individualized uh, production of all goods is number one, desirable. Number two, a beneficial strategy to achieving uh, not, not only self liberation, but possibly building a, uh, a more peer to peer society, we'll say. Yep. Um, so you could have like we're talking about in the digital space with it's sort of a mesh network organization. So you could have a very small distributed production of all things, not just technologies, but, uh, you know, of, of consumer goods and food mm-hmm. and, and energy and that sort of thing. What do you think about that being a, um, a, a viable strategy, not just a desirable end goal, but a good strategy at achieving uh, human liberation? Yeah, it, it is, in my opinion, it's the absolutely the desirable end goal. Like, right. that's exactly where we want to be. Right. Um, is it possible to do right now? 100%. Uh, I, I think that, you know, if again, there, there might be, you know, one or two things here, one or two conveniences that you might give up on the matter, you know, to have it. But I think people could build these things, you know, you know, little intentional communities, respectful even of Dunbar's number. Um, and that, you know, you, like a community like that could really thrive on, um, like, you know, local gardening, farming, whatever, you know, and, and yeah, do, do everything, everything, relocalize everything. And I, I, I think that's absolutely possible. Um, well, what I mean ahead. is, do you think that, so in taking that step, do you mm-hmm. think that that would, um, help us uh if we relocalize started relocalizing things and started Mm -hmm. building communities like that do you think it would help um overall in the you know uh 
in achieving the like a not only as a goal but as a strategy? Do you think that it would help us achieve sort of human liberation from the state? Like yeah, oh yes, absolutely, and I'll explain why. Because when you get people that start living like that, um, again, you know, only only ten percent of human communication is what comes out of our mouths. You get people to, I mean, you have your everyday person in the middle of New York City see the person that's living the life that you're talking about, Sec. You know, like like that more localized life, and they're just going to see so much about that person that is so at peace and so happy. They're going to want a piece of that. They're going to, I mean, and I don't mean like they're going to want to be the government and steal it. I mean, like they're, they're going to want to be a part of that. And not only that, I think that person is just going to be here. Here's, here's the key thing to get anybody on board with anything. It's got to have the cool factor. It's got to be cool. Now, cool is a very nebulous concept, right? You only know it when you see it. But I think that experiencing people who are living that life, um, I think what would convert so many people over to wait, how do I live like that? How do I have that kind of, you know, peace of mind and happiness? And I mean, you see it, you see it a lot of times where, you know, I mean, <laughs> um, you just kind of encounter that person, right. Who, who just seems to have a certain magnetism and a lot of it, it's not like charm or necessarily anything like that. It's just that, wow, you know, what are they doing in their life that, that allows them to just be so calm and so cool. And I, yeah, I think that just in that, now, the other part is, is that as you, and, and this is something I talk about a lot, is that the system, the, you know, the technocratic system that keeps us down, you know, that keeps the, the every person down, uh, you know, that because the every person feels that they're reliant upon it, the authoritarian structures, government, corporations, whatever, they are just as reliant upon this system as quote unquote, we are. Okay. And so as you step out of that system, as you become a blind spot, you know, because you're not using the big network that, that, that everybody else uses because you're not, um, you know, getting a shipment from, I don't know, whatever company uh, you be, you, you really do kind of become a blind spot and you become almost like a, a, a mosquito bite that that just doesn't feel right and affects the entire body and the body being the state uh in my opinion i i think so i think that that's that's like just the way to go like it is the action to take is to build these intentional communities build these you know the, the yeah these little communities that that you know are you know self-sustaining uh as 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 they can possibly be and not reliant upon the system uh and that in multiple ways uh, affects and could lead to bringing down or at least very much uh, uh, aggravating that system. Very well said. And do you think, uh, are you optimistic? Do you, uh, do you see people doing that? Do you think more and more, it seems to me, but it might be um, just the circles I run. And it seems that more and more people are becoming disillusioned with this system not only people that agree with our philosophical or political ideas but people mm -hmm. that are just for you know uh, purely practical reasons are just like oh i'm just and they just kind of walk away and they maybe become more you know uh, self-employed or mm -hmm. or go off and live on a farm or make an intentional community around whatever it is organic farming or bicycling whatever the thing is and they seem it seems that more and more people are 
doing that these days, but maybe I'm being too optimistic. What do you, what? what no, I think it's happening. I, I think it's happening. Uh, in fact, there, there have been a lot of different commentators uh, in like media outlets and whoever they they're paying for um, that have talked about this in the past couple of years, particularly uh, both due to um, president Trump or, you know, ex-president Trump and uh, you know, as well as what's happening with COVID-19 where particularly in America, but I think it's happening all over the world. Uh, you can find the evidence for that. There is a real divide between like rural and urban. In fact, it's not just a divide. It's, it's essentially a psychological civil war that is going on where, you know, people outside of the cities are thinking, well, this isn't bothering me. And people in the cities is why does nobody care? Everybody's everybody's terrible, blah, 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 blah. Right. Um, and so I think in general, like that, I, I do agree that I think there is kind of cultural or psychological uh, civil war going on. And I think that a lot of people are pulling away as much as they can from the system by nature. Uh, I see it a lot within New Hampshire. Of course, New Hampshire is kind of an odd place as far as freedom loving goes in a good way. Um, but in other areas, I've seen it as well. Uh, I mean, one of the best things that I've heard uh, to come out of the past year is how much of the population is leaving New York City. Man, is that is that really great news? <laughs> yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, and, I, and I'm speaking as somebody who also escaped. You know, I, I grew up in Queens. Um, and and I, I just that's fantastic. But I think it speaks to your point. Even if it's not happening at the more conscious, direct level of, you know, building a full-on community, I think it's getting there. I think people are realizing, you know, that they need to reconnect because everything else is just totally out of control and they want to regain some of that. No, um, I can totally turn on N NPR uh, mm -hmm. at all times and you can definitely see like people that totally are not um, having necessarily the exact same ideas or the same motivations not coming from the same place at least mm -hmm. still like definitely getting out of the cities moving to um and big the big thing right now is decentralization just this, this uh small cities large towns right so what, what so what, what that's technically what they'd be but the, what we call small town america and um but even into rural places and um i mean huge decentralization of huge decentralization of the culture and of like uh the idea i mean the, the basic idea of the when, when it really hits me is like 30 years ago you could only get like a good cup of coffee in the u.s you can only get like an, a cappuccino in, mm -hmm. in the u.s in like uh, a few cities a handful like a dozen cities maybe um you know closer to the downtown in a lot of them and now you can go to pretty much uh anywhere anywhere you are in most of the country most of the populated parts of the country you would think you're within 10 minutes of a place that I, get, that I get you that and that's um i've seen it in very small towns so I mean, yeah. in, in, in fact, is they have uh, very high speed Internet access in those places and access to all the goods and all the there's all the logistics. I mean, we obviously have some critiques of obviously the tech and the, you know, the industrial infrastructure that goes along with that. Some of that stuff. But what we can say is that people are able to live uh, in, in a people are starting to be able to live in a way more decentralized fashion and, um, you know, really kind of spread the. I don't want to just say the culture, but just kind of, you know, it, it's just, it's where the, it's where things are happening as, as generally as I can say, it's not the, the center of, of, um, cultural life is not in the cities anymore. I don't think at all. And it doesn't have to be because we have 
the you know for better or for worse the means to communicate with each other with each other outside of this kind of like congregating in centralized locations yeah well, all right did, so, did you have any other uh, optimistic um let me ask you one other thing uh this is a, seg- a definite segue but um <clears throat> what do you know about the um the creator of telegram and that um israeli intelligence list he was found on oh boy you know about that? uh I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so i'm a big That's fan fired. of Pavel fired. yeah <laughs> is is he the Russian anarchist? He's, that's the Telegram guy, right? Yeah, that's Pavel Durov. He's yes, uh, he he is he is a. I mean, basically out in the open, he is an anarchist. I mean, just straight up, uh, or at the very least, you know, I mean, depending on how you want to read, maybe you could say that he's libertarian. Um, so, so <laughs> where, where do you want to go with this? Sec? <laughs> so, so you know, that's what he says, right? But you know. Mm-hmm. Some of the more conspiratorial minded amongst us, and that being me, mm-hmm. might say that uh, he's a he's a, a front, a, a honeypot. Uh, yeah. What do you um, think? Well, I'll be the first to. I mean, as somebody who's espoused the use of Telegram for some time, um, of course, very quickly, I'll just say that I've pretty much always said that never bet your life on it. You know, like, like, don't use it and, and expect, you know, like that, that somehow what you're saying is, is, is in any way, you know, really safe. I've always seen it as a Facebook alternative. Um, and actually recently I've very much seen it as an internet alternative, even though it's, you know, powered over the internet. Uh, it doesn't have to be. In fact, they had plans to, you know, create their own blockchain based peer to peer internet, which is exactly, I think a lot of what we've been fantasizing in this episode. Um, you know, the, the idea that, that telegrams, a honeypot, the encryption sucks, you know, MT proto hasn't gotten any better. Uh, not, not really a fan of that. So I'm I'm not going to say that it's not possible. I just feel like he has, he's had both, you know, sometimes you can judge somebody by their enemies. Now, again, all that could be a setup. But the fact that the Russian government is clearly after him, the German government is now actively going after him, um, and the SEC wouldn't let his grander plans for Telegram go forward, does make me think that he's on the, shall we say, the right side, you know, (laughs) that that he's more on our side. So, but that's, that's the only evidence I've got to say, you know, to say that as to why he would be more on our side. His, I mean, as far as his anarchism goes, he's really big on the statement remain neutral. And I feel like that's taken to its logical conclusion as a very egoist anarchist perspective. And, you know, egoist anarchism allows for all kinds of things. So I, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. know. It's a great question. (laughs) Well, here's the thing. Um, So, You know, everybody's a principled human being until <clears throat> somebody's got a gun to your kid's head. You know what I mean? Sure. So, um, and this, I, hey, look, call me conspiracy all you want to. This is absolutely the MO of intelligence communities, especially mm-hmm. Mossad. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. So from what I understand, and I have not dug very deep in it, he was on a list of people that through a company very, uh, very similar to like uh, American Incutel, like so a CIA connected um, technology company. Mm-hmm. And he was on some list somewhere involving them. And that's basically all we know. So it could very well be that maybe he was a target of some sort of, uh, it could be just as easy that he's a target um, of these, you know, Israeli right. intelligence as he's working actively with him, or he, you know, they've um, have him compromised in some way too. It could also be of, you know, it's easy to be, have principles until, you know, like I said, until um, mm-hmm. somebody's got a gun to your head. So, I mean, it, there's a, there's a lot of excla- explanations. It just makes me trust Telegram a bit less, I guess. But um, sure, the eternal skeptic, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, I. Or go ahead. Have you dug into it at all? Do you have you like have you researched this at all more than I have, or no? Probably not more than you have. Um, okay. I mean, I, I I get it, and I get the concerns. Uh, and it goes to, you know, what are your, what are people's tolerance levels? You know, um, again, I, I never, never, ever bet my life on, on telegram. Um, and I am particular in what, you know, what I do, you know, what gets talked about, um, on there. Uh, I recently did an episode called the ultimate messenger. Telegram was not the top of the list. Uh, so, um, actually threema was the top of the list as far as what to use. Um, again, there's a lot you know, if, if that's the case, what you're saying, if, if somehow, you know, telegram slash Pavel Durov is, you know, he's created a honeypot here. There are still a lot of ways that he has done things that are the right direction and worth emulating. Um, but the hard part is, is that, you know, the only way you can create something like telegram where people all around the world can access it. Like you could do a smaller scale version with your own home server and, and use it very well. Um, but you need to be a billionaire or you're a multimillionaire or whatever, like Pavel Durov is to be able to fund that without engaging in, you know, some of that surveillance capitalism without, uh, you know, because I mean, he's funding this thing essentially, or at least as we understand it all on his own. That's uh, what I've heard, yeah. 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 You know, it's coming it's from his own is, fortune. Telegram is still not making any money. He's just right. still funding billion, like millions of dollars a year into it. Right. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And I mean, again, th- he's, where's that money going? You know, like, how is that happening? Like the economics of it don't seem to make a whole ton of sense. Unless again, you do have all the millions like you would off of making the Facebook of Russia, you know, that being VK. Um, so, so that that's, I mean, that speaks to the issue of scale also that we've gotten into here. Uh, but you know, if I heard that he was, I don't think I'd be shocked. Ultimately I'd be disappointed for sure, but I wouldn't be shocked. Okay, fair enough. Fair enough. All right, let's so a good time what, to... what was wait, 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 wait. Okay. What was the um for just for my own memory in the audience, what was your top pick for messaging messaging apps? Threema? Yeah, three yeah, threema. So I just, looked, I just looked it up. Yeah, yeah. I just looked it up as soon as you said it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um I mean quickly, uh, very quickly, I'll just explain um I mean, the beauty of it is that, you know, because we're talking about how, oh man, you know, almost, or I'm talking about anyway, how mobile devices are, you know, radioactive, don't touch them. Um, I mean, you can do things like you can put, um, uh, 
you know, you could put lineage OS, right? You could get away from Google on Android to a degree. Uh, so there's alternatives to do that. One of the recommendations now, Telegram, you can also install independently on Android without the Google Play Store. Uh, but the beauty of Threema is that you can, it, you do have to buy it, but you can buy it with Bitcoin. You can buy it right through their site. You don't need the Google Play Store. You don't need iOS. Don't need any of that. Um, and you can install it, you know, on a basically on a Googleless Android uh, smartphone, which was one of the big winners for it. Uh, also, okay. its encryption has been heavily vetted. Uh, I, it's it's really really well done. Um, the only other one I'd recommend is Briar, uh, and that's Android only. As to where Threema is available on Apple and and Android. Um, I use that. That's very good. Yeah, yeah Briar is phenomenal because Briar is again much of what we've been fantasizing about here. Briar is where it already exists. Briar can function without an internet connection, right? It can just use Bluetooth and Wi-Fi direct and everything. I mean, it's, you know, if we had one of those communities, like, like we were talking about, people would be using something like Briar. Right. Because you need it to, you need the phones to um, couple and to handshake, right? Yeah. To to do the handshake, um, like where you'd be be nearby and everything. I mean, you can kind of get around that now, but regardless, uh, Briar is is really quite, it's a dream app. I just don't know if it's ever going to reach scale, but then maybe it never should. Yeah, like you said, maybe it should only be a very, uh, you know, um, local app application for right. that right. technology. And, um, so what do you think about, is there ever a possible, so John McAfee years ago, I remember him talking about wanting to create a phone that was not surveillable. Do you think that that is not possible? So his phone, which as far as I know, never, never actually, I mean, he had it like didn't. a mock-up, but it never came into existence. Right. Um, he had some of the right ideas. Uh, I mean, I think it, if I remember right, it still had the Google play store, which that's a fail. The Google play store is a rootkit. You've got to get away from that. What do you Um, mean a rootkit? Uh, the Google play store is so entrenched into the root of the system. Like it's so entrenched in the operating system of Android, um, that it's, it's essentially a kit that Google can use to access anything that you're doing on your smartphone. Um, I would argue that, you know, like using signal on a phone with the Google play store, uh, I mean, the Google play store itself could be the key logger, you know, I mean, it's just so entrenched. So that's why it's important, you know, things like lineage OS and there's some like graphene OS. There's some other ones that have been developed over the years that are trying to make an Android that has no Google in it, which is great. Hmm. Um, but McAfee's phone. So the, the key thing that he was going for was he had switches on the back of it. Now, unfortunately, I I think we learned that they were just soft switches. So a soft switch is just something that, okay, you flip it or you press it on a touchscreen and the the software, the operating system apparently does the action that you told it to do by flipping the switch, you know, physical or not. So that's a soft switch. A hardware, a hard switch or a hardware switch is something that literally cuts off a wire, okay, where when you flip it, a physical action has occurred. It's not just the software telling something to do something. It's say the Wi-Fi was cut off at the wire, was cut off at the antenna. So hard, so hard electrons switch. can literally not pass through. Bingo. So you, right, right. Yeah. So uh, McAfee's phone was, I think we found out that they were soft switches ultimately, but it looked good because it looked like they were hardware switches where if you want to turn off the Bluetooth, you flip the switch on the back and the Bluetooth, the electrons can't even get to the Bluetooth, you know, uh, antenna, right? 
um, or the Wi-Fi gets cut off or whatever, because right now we're all just trusting Google that when we turn off Bluetooth, that it's actually off, or when we turn off mm-hmm. uh, uh, 4G, it's actually off. And yeah. we know that they can remotely, like, you know, depending upon what connections available, they can remotely turn all that stuff back on anyway. And when um, those things are on, you know, they pretty much are doing all sorts of communication with outside devices, even if you don't like phys- like physically improve its connection, because they got to be able to discover other devices. So they have the ability to right interact with all sorts in all sorts of ways with other devices and it's in all sorts of data or collect right. all sorts of data exactly penguin so yeah so you know having hardware switches like a mcafee phone if they were hardware switches is a move in the right direction where you have absolute control to kill every radio on that smartphone if you need to um but there were i i recall i think we did again i think i had the google play store which is you know just ultimately a problem say nothing of the fact that android is like multiple gigabytes of the space that Android uh, uh, takes up on, on a smartphone. A lot of that is storage of data. It's a cache for data that even when say you're out in the boondocks or you're, you know, wherever, somewhere where there isn't any kind of signal, no internet whatsoever. Android is still recording everything that you're doing without that. Okay. And Android, you know, Google powered as in, you know, at the very least as the Google play store, Google powered Android is transmitting all of that. Even while you're disconnected, you know, from a network is will transmit all that. Once it gets back to a network, Um, maybe after a year, if you were disconnected, it couldn't store all of that because it does have a limited amount of data uh, in the cash to access or, you know, to store that. Um, But, you know, having anything Google on there is just going to be a fail. Like there's that freedom phone that's out there right now too. That's another one. I don't know if you guys have heard of this. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So the freedom phones, nonsense, but yeah, yeah. Well, the reason that it's nonsense ultimately comes down to its app repository. It comes down to its app store. Okay. It's not the Google play store, but they're just using the Aurora app store, which accesses the Google play store. So you didn't get rid of Google at all. Like, and to say that it's, you know, you can't, or that it's uncensorable is nonsense because once the Google play store gets rid of whatever app, I don't know if somebody's into parlor or whatever crap they're into, once it gets deleted on the Google play store, you're not going to get it on the freedom phone either. So you didn't, you're, you're not uncensorable to anything. So you've really got to get away from the tech giants in general, which you can do with Android to some degree, but then also you really need to know you have control over the radios on that device. And that comes down to hardware switches. So in, in concept McAfee's phone was interesting, but in, in as far as how it was getting implemented, bit of a fail. I think he also mentioned, and I don't remember what it was, but having a trouble having trouble with security because he would still have to interact with uh, you know all of these networks and these mm-hmm. telecommunications industries, and um, he really wouldn't be able to say that this was you know untrackable, unsurveillable. He, he just, I think that's part of the reason it just never ever came to fruition. Right. Oh, um, oh, oh, oh. I just that just really made me think of something. Uh, did Did you hear about that? Um, supposedly a heavily encrypted phone recently that was an uh f complete fbi honey or not uh international yes. honeypot well, i i just saw a whole thing about that and that was it just completely left my mind up until now yeah so absolutely uh somebody tr- basically cre- have been has been created there's been a series of devices created that kind of do messaging in a in a way that kind of is like how we're describing at least as far as the heavy encryption and and mm-hmm. one of the latest ones was taken over by the fbi and re- resulted in um uh, arrest of people all over the world like all over the world oh, yeah 
Yeah, that's a great point to bring up, Penguin, uh, because, you know, that like a lot of people ask me, Brian, why don't you talk about the Phantom phone? Why don't you talk about like all these other phones that are out there that are, you know, really doing a lot of this stuff right and everything? And, and frankly, it's because, well, usually they're out of the price range out of my, you know, the average person, say. Um, and but not just that. If it if it's if it's really doing it right and it's being you know like it's it's even remotely mass produced, the FBI is either it's either a honeypot and the FBI is directly involved or they're going to shut it down. So I don't really waste time you know talking about a lot of those um, on a smaller scale. You know maybe that that's kind of possible, but boy, I'd have a hard time trusting devices like that. Yeah, the only way I see, I see you be able to being able to do that kind of thing is if I guess you have just totally open source and then i just don't know i don't know first i don't personally have the know-how how you can work around some of these issues obviously because they would have been done already mm -hmm. but i mean something from that perspective not from the perspective oh yeah we've come up with the ultimate secure encrypted phone that anybody can use and the government can't find i mean i no, there's just no way that yeah works. i'm just gonna assume you're fed right off the bat if you yeah <laughs> well now we know now we know that was a yeah. huge international news story yeah but yeah so i mean like the only safe move is like carrier pigeon with like uh an yeah. you know a coded a coded message with a book key you know what i mean like this, <laughs> i've been saying that for years if you want it if you want to be real secure it's just you know start sending letters again really with that are encoded sure right i mean thousands of years you know well it was, you know <laughs> I mean, in all in all seriousness, you know, like why do why do uh, particular the, the wealthy why do they spend so much money on on getting dogs and like training them and everything? It's because they're they're the unhackable security system, you know. <laughs> like, okay. Any any electronic uh, security system they think they have, they know can essentially get broken, right? And so they always have that backup, and that's the good old organic animal, you know, ready to take care of the business. Uh, so <laughs> as, yeah. as funny as a carrier pigeon may sound. Well, you know, it might be the move, really. Yeah. I mean, speak okay. So speaking of John McAfee, I've been fond of McAfee for a mm -hmm. while. Just him as like a, a human being, I've I've greatly enjoyed. Just piles of cocaine and his hooker brides and guns yep. everywhere. Yeah, yep. just a big fan. <laughs> so, um, do you think um, do you think he was murdered, or do you oh, boy. think? <laughs> or do you think like he uh is that much of a troll that he made everybody think that he was mur gonna get murdered and it was the feds and he just offed himself because he was that's the paradox to... yeah yeah what do you think what do you think about that yeah so uh, well i don't have a twitter account anymore i got banned by twitter he and i have actually interacted okay. on twitter in the past um he, he we, we followed each other and everything you know um <laughs> even though i've been so critical of that guy over the years uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to believe I, I'm kind of leaning towards the latter that he's just that kind of a troll, you know, um, I, I could really see him doing that. I just, I, I have a hard time believing that, that ultimately his, his life was worth that much, you know, that he was worth an assassin. I, I really, really do. Um, you know, he, he's not Epstein, right? Uh, and, and I'm not saying that to 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 diminish him in any way. I'm just saying, you know, that that's that's where I lean on it. But well, so here's ahead. the thing. I, I think he's possibly more of a potential target than Epstein. And mm -hmm. here's why. So, you know, it's was it was it Camus? Uh 
said, you know, you, you live your life. Uh, well, shit. Shit, 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 shit. Um, you make it so just your living your life is an act of revolution. Yeah, right. Uh, yep. Well, you know the quote. I can't think of it now, but and that's what regardless of what you can say about um, there's tons of criticisms you can make of John McAfee, but he definitely did that. So I think um, just being like a giant thorn in the side and showing that, uh, yeah, like a, a blatant disregard for what they thought about him mm-hmm. is possibly um, more detrimental than say um, somebody who's going to leak dirt on powerful people. I don't, I don't know because it, it goes to Epstein did not, strike at the legitimacy of power itself true you see what i'm yeah. saying yeah I Where is if we all um you know stopped relating our lives to what the state does and just said we don't care what you think we're gonna go do our own thing over here and we're gonna do whatever we want that would be the end of the state mm-hmm. but epstein um and that's more or less how john mcafee lived i'm gonna go out on a yacht and shoot guns and do piles of cocaine <laughs> and fuck the irs and your tag i don't care what any of you think of me um you know that to me is strikes at the, the sort of the root whereas epstein you know regardless of how many politicians or bankers went down for diddling kids because of epstein um they that was not striking at the legitimacy of power Whereas yeah, I think, I think um, uh, McAfee was almost cultural meme in that regard. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know. It almost seems like it. I don't know. I don't know if Epstein was killed or murdered or killed himself either. But mm-hmm. um, it just seems a, as likely to me. I'm, you know? Yeah, I mean, I do think the government will often arrest people, and of course they're trying to like extradite him, right? Um, I do think that. The government will often arrest people just as figureheads. You know, they'll take out mm-hmm. one just to send a warning message out to the, all the others. Mm-hmm. Um, even though they, they never arrest them, even if they've done 10 times worse than the person who was arrested. Uh, quote unquote worse, I should say, <laughs> you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, maybe, you know, I'm, I'm open, I, I guess, to that. Uh, but but really, and, and a part of me almost wants him to do it as, as the epic troll. I don't know. Maybe his health was failing. I, I yeah. I don't know. You, you you got me on this one. I'm not. I'm not really sure. Yeah, I'm not either. To be honest. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well, Brian, thanks. This has been um. This has been an awesome conversation. We'll have to do this again sometime. But um, absolutely. Yeah, I've loved we, it. We should start wrapping this up. Um, sure. Yeah. I mean, when we start talking about John McAfee, we're kind of scraping under the barrel at that point. <laughs> <you know>? so, <laughs> What are you? What were your criticisms of John McAfee? Like, what what didn't you like about him? I guess. Oh, I I think he he oversold a lot of what he was talking about with, uh, well, with his smartphone for one. There was a lot oh, of sure. fails there. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of a lot of different cryptos. I mean, just a lot of different things he was promoting, uh, yeah. were were way overblown and or wild or wildly inaccurate. I, I don't want to say lies, but. He, he his best days in the tech world were clearly well behind him and and he was espousing i think dangerous or uh potentially harmful strategies like things that weren't going to live up to the billing he was putting on him so he definitely did i didn't like him for his tech advice that was not yeah like it, yeah he did definitely seem like he like knew enough to be dangerous you know like sure he did, 
he'd hear about something and go off half cocked and rail, you know, rant on and on about it. That was yeah. true. I think it was more of a, a lack of knowledge on his part than any kind of like yeah, nefariousness. Uh, yes, right. exactly. Yeah, yeah. I could, I definitely agree with you there. Yeah. Well, hey, Penguin, do you have anything else, bud? Uh, no. I think this was a fantastic conversation. I re- really this was enjoyed a lot of fun, having yeah. it, and I think this is one of our yeah one of our best episodes. I mean, they're all great. I don't know. It's it's, it's so much different, like you said, sec from having like a talking anti tech for several episodes and then ha- be, be talking tech but still keeping like the same train i was really su- i'm really surprised i'm pleasantly surprised i think about how how this how so much of this conversation fit in with our our you know usual mo- motifs i mean it was great so i thank you very much brian for coming on sure i appreciate it and uh yeah and 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 keep the good word out there i know you guys are doing it so if you want to check out my show, just SovereignTech.com, S-O-V-R-Y-N-T-E-C-H.com. You got anything else com. to plug? Or, um... No, that's that's kind of my big one. SovereignTech.com. Okay. You know, the, the show is is where everything else springs forth. So, <laughs> Okay. I also recommend it. It's a great show. So, but yeah, honored, guys. Thanks for coming on. It's been, uh, it's been a blast. And uh, we'll have to have you back on again real soon. Anytime. All right. Thanks, brother. All right. Take care. Peace. Just dynamite stuff, I tell you. Um, all right. So <laughs> I went back and did my research on what was going on with uh, Pavel Durov. And really, this all speaks to um, the NSO group. So the NSO group is a company out of or a technology firm, really. They're uh, just outside of Tel Aviv, uh, which, boy, if, if there were, <laughs> I know we were just ripping on cities in this episode. If there were beautiful cities in the world, like if I would use that term for any city, uh, Tel Aviv would be one of them. Uh, Just a gorgeous city. I haven't been there in really too long, uh, but man, what a place. But I am not going to say kind things about the NSO group uh, themselves. So there was in June of this year of 2021, um, there was a, uh, well, (laughs) a bombshell of a story. I think the Guardian broke it um, and some others, you know, kind of picked it up from there um, about what is known as, well, there is an investigation and then there's a software. The investigation is the Pegasus project. The software is itself uh, called Pegasus. And what this software, the software is essentially spyware uh, for smartphones. And this is, it's, you know, for remote surveillance of smartphones. Okay. Nasty, nasty stuff. And has been around for a while. Um, this software gets legally licensed and sold to, uh, to governments. It's not supposed to be sold or used by private entities. I mean, we could get into a big subject around Pegasus itself, you know, the software, but suffice it to say it is meant to be used for, uh, you know, targets by nation states, Whoever that happens to be, uh, the argument theoretically would be, you know, against terrorists and, and whatever else. But what the investigation known as the Pegasus Project discovered was that for the, about the past five years, since like 2016, um, at least, there have been, oh, so what is it, like 50,000 phone numbers that they found on this list. And this is the list um, that I believe SEC was, was referencing. But what's... What's the issue here is that this list of phone numbers doesn't belong 
to, you know, terrorists or necessarily violent individuals. A lot of them are reporters for like the Washington Post and, you know, other major uh, media outlets. Um, there's activists on this, like, you know, peaceful activists, even, um, there are heads of state on there. Uh, but I, I mean, like there's just, it's, it would appear that Pegasus is being used against quote unquote, the wrong people. If it was meant to be used against, you know, violent individuals, that was not the case. According to this list. Now, one of the names that appeared on this list was Pavel Durov, who is of course the, uh, founder of. Uh, you know, of telegram itself. Now on the Agora podcast episode that you just listened to, I already explained, you know, how I feel about telegram overall. Um, So I'm not going to rehash that uh, here, but the ultimate concern here is that Pavel Durov was targeted by the NSO group, which likely, or by, by Pegasus, which who was operating, you know, Pegasus to who was, and, and who was, you know, basically targeting as in who's targeting these, uh, you know, 50,000, the individuals that these 50,000 phone numbers belong to. Um, now the Pegasus project, again, the Pegasus project is not the Pegasus software. The Pegasus project is the group of media, uh, outlets, you know, of news organizations that came together to do this investigation. Um, and you could say, well, wait, why would the mainstream media want to like, you know, do something about NSO, blah, blah, blah. Well, again, a lot of their journalists. And I mean, you know, understand like, sure there's wall street journal, but I mean also Al Jazeera, CNN, the AP, right. Associated press, financial times. Like of course there's incentives for these news organ, you know, for these media outlets to, you know, to investigate this because their own people are targeted. Right. And I'm sure some of them, some of their journalists, some of the reporters saw something wacky perhaps or, you know, somehow maybe they figured out that they were being targeted one way or the other. But as to who's doing the targeting, it was, according to the Pegasus Project, there are at least 11 countries that, at least in the investigation, were identified. So there's uh, Bahrain, Hungary, India, Kazakhstan, Mexico, Morocco, Rwanda, Saudi Arabia, Togo, and uh, the UAE. Um, and I, th- I think there's one other. But anyway, so these these are the, you know, the potential... Uh, uh, malicious actors. And we know that the Pegasus spyware itself um, is effective, that it works. That's not a good thing, but it does. Uh, <laughs> so like there was the, oh, the, there was the, the journalist in Saudi or the Saudi journalist who was murdered um, by you know, the Saudi government. Um, Jamal Khashoggi, was it? Anyway, like his family, uh, family members of his were targeted using, uh, you know, the Pegasus spyware. So, you know, this is, this is legit. Um, and Hey, you know, when you start going after somebody's family members, like sex said, some people's, uh, you know, principles go out the door. So the concern here would be that if Pavel Durov is targeted, uh, you know, maybe one of these countries and, you know, if I were a, a betting person, I'm not, if I were, uh, (laughs) Or maybe if, here, a better one. If I was throwing darts, I'd be aiming for Saudi Arabia right now. As far as who, as far, who do I think was behind this list? Ultimately, I mean, it could, it doesn't have to be one country, but boy, Saudi Arabia. I mean, talk about yes, all countries are evil, including the United States. Like every, all of them. Okay, you know, just because of the inherent 
uh, domination nature of governments, right? So we're anarchists here, folks. That said, <laughs> if there were somehow like a, a, a gradient, if there is somehow a scale uh, or, a, you know, a, a temperature gauge and the most egregious companies that, that, that trample upon individual actions were, you know, say like higher on, on the thermometer, you know, and like in the 120 degree range, Saudi Arabia would pretty much be at the top of the list. If we had like some kind of, you know, list of evil countries, you know, and number one is the most evil again, Saudi Arabia would be right there. So now to be clear, when I say that, I mean the Saudi government. Okay. When I say Saudi country, Saudi people, different. Look, and I've been to Saudi Arabia. Okay. Uh, spent quite some time there actually. So I know the score. Saudi government would be at the top of that evil list. Okay. So the question becomes, as it relates to telegram, is Pavel Durov, was he a target of one of these countries or Saudi Arabia at the very least? And what became of that? To be clear, again, you know, it, it doesn't have to just be the countries that are on the Pegasus Projects list. Um, also, I think when the Guardian was was diving deeper on this, so there are two things that came out of the about it, you know, when diving deeper on this. One uh, is that it appears Pavel Durov, if he was targeted by one of the countries, it would have been the UAE. Not so much surprise since Telegram's office right now is in Dubai, right? Of course, nobody's ever seen anybody even go into that office. No, like, actually, there was a great write-up by Der Spiegel. Uh, I think it was Der Spiegel recently about Pavel Durov. If I think of it, I'll link to it in the show notes. And I, this is recommended reading because it gives you some insight to what could possibly be gleaned about Pavel Durov. Okay. Um, so it could have been the UAE, you know, again, my bet would be, I mean, and, and if it was, it would sort of make sense. I'm still leaning heavily that even if it was, if it was the UAE or other countries that, you know, Saudi Arabia is kind of the, the, you know, the country pulling or the government pulling the, 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 the strings here. And that's based on historical analysis, not on direct evidence in this case. Um, the other part or speaking of direct evidence, the other part here is that according to, uh, the NSO group and appears with the, uh, it appears that with the Pegasus spyware that they can actually see where it's been installed. Um, but Duroff, according to NSO was not a target. So that means that the software was never installed on his phone, according to NSO. So according to them, again, NSO themselves, just because the number was on the list does not mean that they were, uh, you know, whether it was actually selected for surveillance, it's just, you know, a number of interest, uh, that could be, you know, on that list, but it was definitely Pavel Durov's number. It's the number that's been attached. It's a UK number that's been attached to his telegram uh, account for years. Um, you know, and, and here's the thing you got to understand with Pegasus because, so the idea is, is that they want to get access to whatever you're doing on your phone. Um, one of the major issues here around the Pegasus spyware is that, you know, look, cause you could say, well, I mean, in fact, I think I saw this. I saw some people online like laughing saying, ha ha, too bad. He was using telegram, which doesn't have encryption, you know, end to end encryption on by default. Uh, no jackasses. Sorry. He could have been using signal. He could have been using wh whatever. 
and the Pegasus spyware is going to own it. You know, it's going to bypass that encryption just by the nature of it, right? Whether it's reading the screen or key logging or whatever. So, you know, save your jokes for something else. But that said, I mean, can we trust the NSO group when they say, oh, no, it wasn't installed on his phone? Uh, you, You know, I mean, like... Can we can we take them at their word on that? We have no reason to take them on their word on that. So it still could have happened. Um, and look, yes, it can happen to these kinds of individuals, right? I mean, what happened with, uh, you know, with Jeff Bezos, richest man in the world? And, you know, his phone got, got cracked into, right? Via WhatsApp uh, is the going theory. So it can happen. But NSO says it didn't. But is this NSO covering up? For Pavel Durov, because, you know, he's on he's on on team government, you know, and they want to make sure that their uh, their their honeypot golden boy is is in the clear and that people keep using Telegram willy nilly. Um, I mean, you know, we, we can't really know what the deal is there. Uh, my analysis on it is thus. So. What I know of Pavel Durov, and you can kind of glean some of this also from that Dear Spiegel article, which was actually shared in the Telegram group uh, a little while back, but in the Sovereign Tech Telegram group, that is, of all ironies, okay? <laughs> um, but I, like I said, if I think of it, I'll, I'll share it in the show notes. When you read through that, it very much appears that Pavel Durov doesn't even like really use a smartphone. Like, that's the sense I get, that he has secretaries, you know, he has, (laughs) to use a colloquialism, he has bitches for that, right? (laughs) Okay. And, I mean, just, just like, if he actually lives up to anything of what he says, that has nothing to really do with his anarchism, but just has to do with his concepts on privacy and some other things. Um, I would think, and, and he almost directly says it in the Dear Spiegel interview, I would almost think that or his, his attitude seems to be, go ahead and hack my phone. You won't find anything that's worthwhile to you. And I could believe that, you know, we, we spent, um, a, a good chunk of the Agora podcast episode, uh, talking about separating your devices, right? Having a device for work, having a device for this, having a device for that. Um, I mean, you know, we're, we're three smart guys, obviously on that show, uh, but we're not the only ones that that could have ever come up with this stuff. So I would not be surprised if Pavel Durov, you know, was segmenting things to where that phone number meant nothing. Um, you know, I have a work phone number. I also have other phone numbers, right? Uh, I have, I have a work device. I also have other devices. If you got into my work device, well, you know, I, I mean, if somebody really got into that, I, I mean, you're going to find out some interesting things about PR that I guarantee you are, you know, ultimately positively boring. Um, but that's my device that faces the world. I put nothing of import on that device. Nothing. Okay. I know better. I don't fuck around. I mean, what, when the whole situation happened with Jeff Bezos, we, you know, where, where those pictures got leaked of, of him and his new gal, you know, we talked about that actually over a couple episodes at least, but I was just stunned to find out that like, wait a minute, you're, you know, you're the richest man alive. And like, 
you're not locking down your shit as well as I am when I'm the exact opposite, right? I'm not even close to being the richest man alive. I, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm the, I'm on the whole other end of the scale, you know? Oh, what, what was it? Uh, Twitter recently came out with statistics. Twitter came out with statistics that said only 2% of Twitter users have multi-factor authentication on, on their account. What the fuck? Only 2%. I mean, you know, the, the great Twitter hack of 2020, um, the great Twitter disaster really of 2020, that, that had really had nothing to do with multi-factor authentication that was done via the site's God mode. So, you know, there's an argument to be made that, you know, MFA doesn't really matter or 2FA if you want to call it that. But I, I think using the term MFA is better now uh, because, hey, I'd be great if I had to do more than two. <laughs> Please, <laughs> let me have five-factor authentication. Yes, I want it to be that difficult, okay? But holy shit, you know... you. You, you have people that, yeah, like they on Twitter of all things, which one could imagine a lot of very private info on that and, and so on and something that people would want to get their eyes on. And only 2% of people have MFA there. What the hell? So, you know, there's a chance that maybe Pavel Durov isn't that smart about it. Since so few people, even people that should know better, don't know better, you know, to lock down their shit really, really well. Um, you know, we do know that Pavel Durov uses Android smartphones. Does he, is he using the, uh, you know, Google advanced protection program? Is he buying like specific highly encrypted smartphones? Kind of like we were talking about in the Agora podcast, um, you know, that, that, that don't have any, uh, Google services on them and that exists only for those who know about them in the rich. I mean, Hey, maybe, you know, and could the advanced protection program even stop spyware like Pegasus? Perhaps not, but I find it interesting that Google uh, initially was promoting the advanced protection program for the exact kind of people that Pegasus spyware uh, targets or is meant to or has been targeting anyway since 2016. You know, that being heads of state, activists, journalists, etc. And yes, I mean, Google even said activists. But regardless, so if Pavel Durov was targeted, did have Pegasus used against him did get his ass owned and, you know, potentially threatened, uh, you know, do by, by a government, by a nation state saying, do what we say, or X will happen. X bad thing will happen. Um, you know, is that potentially going on here based upon this or has whatever nation state, you know, if they did, if they were able to use Pegasus against, uh, Pavel Durov, did they somehow get the keys to the kingdom of telegram? Um, you know, again, it, I don't think they would have gotten that through a mobile phone. Could they have what they've gotten off of a smartphone, you know, gotten them access to a server or something else somewhere on Telegram? You know, I mean, if it was someone else, even if it was like Jeff Bezos, <laughs> there's a part of me that would almost say, yeah, that's possible. And ultimately, is it possible? Sure, it's possible. Um, I do find it overall unlikely. Um I am not saying to, and you heard me say it or during the Agora podcast, I'm not saying to bet your life and to trust Telegram. Okay. Not saying that whatsoever. If anything, this whole situation with, you know, Pegasus spyware is really bolstering my point that I made in the Agora podcast that, you know, smartphones are a lost cause. Once you're targeted, 
you're done. You know, once it's on there, signal powerless, all these other things, fucking powerless. Right. Um, and that really speaks to what I've said for years on sovereign tech. That is if you are targeted by a nation state, there's not a whole hell of a lot you can do. Like if you are targeted, 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 like theoretically Pavel Durov was. Okay. I mean, he was definitely on the list. Was he targeted? That's where there's debate or, you know, what targeted as in it got installed on him. That's where there's some debate. Um, if you're targeted, okay, you're done. I mean, like that, that's, you know, they're going to follow you wherever and you might as well just leave civilization, frankly, which isn't a bad idea, even if you're not targeted, but ultimately sure. We could say it's possible. What I think is the most interesting here. And again, if Pavel Durov did get targeted, okay. Or why was his number on this list? Here's my, here's my guess um, on why that is. And it ultimately comes down to a country that was not in the Pegasus projects list of people who were supposedly using or of, of, you know, nation state actors that were supposedly using uh, Pegasus. And that's Iran. Iran is not on the list. And I find that very interesting because one point where uh, some activists have had a bit of validity against, or, you know, have had some real, real like evidence against telegram is that there was a point a couple of years ago where it seemed Telegram, thus Pavel Durov, was playing ball with uh, the Iranian government. Okay. So go back to that list of 11 countries, and it's all countries, you know, kind of in and around or, you know, surrounding Iran. And if there was some kind of attempt to, you know, like maybe, maybe I could totally picture one of these countries, UAE, Saudi Arabia, whatever, wanting to get access to Pavel Durov's, you know, whatever app he was using, whether it's Telegram or something else, to see what he was communicating with, uh, you know, Iranian officials. That's believable. Okay. Now, that might be distasteful beyond distasteful, you know, alone. The, the whole Iranian connection. And again, I've heard activists like, you know, come out about that and blah, blah, blah. And, and there's been some evidence to the contrary. I mean, that's a whole other story to get into, but that story, that event is really, especially since the number appeared in 2018, which is around when there was, when this heat was, uh, uh, you know, kind of a, at a hotter level with Iran, uh, in telegram amongst activists. Um, I, I think that there's, there's something there. Okay. And you know, again, I, I, I think so many people have this sense that, Oh, all these, you know, quote unquote, Middle East or uh, Arabic quote unquote countries um, are all kind of working together and they're all blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's, that's just not true. <laughs> okay. I mean, it's, it's not even remotely true. Or at the very least, they're not working together all the time on every little thing. It's not like they're one. It's They're not the Ottoman Empire, is my point. Okay. So does Saudi Arabia have problems with Iran? Sure. Does Kazakhstan have problems with Iran? Sure. You know, is the enemy my enemy, my friend, blah, blah, blah. You know, I, I mean, these nation state relationships are ridiculously complex at this scale. So that's that's my guess of why they were so hot about, you know, if there was 
you know, if there was a, a if somehow Pavlodorov became a person of interest, that's how he became a person of interest to this list of 11 countries um, or to the UAE. I mean, the other point is, is that again, I mean, read that dear Spiegel article about, uh, about the office, the telegram office in Dubai. And I mean, it's hilarious, right? <laughs> like the people who work the desk at the building, you know, because it's part of like an office building, the people who work the desk at the office building said, yeah, we've never seen anybody go into that room. We've never seen anybody come out. We've never, you know, <laughs> so, uh, so the UAE, which is in Dubai. So the UAE would certainly, you know, I could see where they'd be coming from and saying, uh, what the fuck's going on here? <laughs> you know, <laughs> This company's in our, uh, you know, here, and it's this very popular company and it's deals in encryption. What, what, what's the score, right? So I can imagine that as well, but a part of me is really thinking this has to just based on the timeline that this has to do with the, you know, the, the telegram and Iran, uh, you know, Iranian government situation. That's where I, where I think it's at. So that that's, I mean, again, there's just speculation abounding on all of this other than Pegasus exists. The countries, the, you know, the 11 countries listed off have used it. At least that 11 uh, have used it. And that the individuals on this list were people of interest, whether or not it got installed on this entire 50,000, you know, phone number list on all 50,000 phones or whatever, uh, you know, even that's up to debate. Okay. Um, but that's the situation. So what do you do about this? What are the courses of action? Should you stop using telegram? You know, is like, is that, is that a course of action to take out of this? Uh, not when you use telegram in the mindset that I, you know, have always espoused saying, no, this is just a Facebook alternative. Okay. Uh, you know, the encryption is like a nice bonus, but even if it really works, right. But it's it, just think of it as a bonus. Um, I mean, unless you're using the secret chat, you know, then that that's, that's a little bit different, but even then, and we've talked about that over the years on sovereign tech. So, I mean, to me, the course of action here really ultimately has to do with the existence of the Pegasus spyware itself. And that is toss your fucking smartphone, <laughs> right? Just get rid of it. But I know, like we talked about in the Agora podcast, not everybody can do that, right? Even I can't really toss my smartphone, but you can segment things. And I think that's like the most practical thing that I can recommend, you know, that, that people do. Um, but if you needed more evidence of just how screwed everybody is, you know, even people who you'd think, wouldn't be screwed, who would do all of this right. All the things we talk about on Sovereign Tech, you know, uh, on, on how to rein in your technology. Well, there's technology even to thwart them once they become a target. So keep that in mind. Uh, anyway, I'll wrap this one up. Um, boy, again, what an honor to be on the Agora podcast. Uh, I mean, really, to you know, to have, it's so great to have those kinds of high-level conversations and to get into, you know, the really deep stuff. Um, just, just a lot of fun. Uh, and we need podcasts out there that are just unabashedly, you know, radical decentralization, anarchism, freedom, you know, and, and that's what we're espousing and we're having the conversations around it to how, and, and we're going to get having the conversations not to introduce people necessarily, but how do, you know, how do we get to solutions? That's such a necessary thing to have out there. And so I'm really, again, really honored to have been asked and to have been on the show. Uh, and I'm so glad that that podcast is out there. So I am going to wrap this one up more sovereign tech to come and I will see all of you woo, on the other side.